You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining. And this week, I am joined by the raddest of Rob's, Rob Ellis. <laughs> Welcome, Rob. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for, thanks for having me on here. My pleasure. So for those who don't know who you are, what you do, all those details, tell us. So yeah, my name's Rob. I'm the director of manufacturing for Maztec Industries. So we're a company that, you know, I guess at the core, at the core what we do, we're just a bunch of, we're basically an engineering company with the emphasis is engineering. And then we've, we have our manufacturing leg of that as well. So, you know, everybody at our company is kind of, you know, likes to innovate new products and come up with some cool stuff. And so I get to be the lucky one to churn all of those ideas into reality. And it's, it's a pretty fun thing to do. So. Yeah. It seems like you really get to play. You really just get to play on the machines. Like, oh, you, yeah, know, you well, have to make stuff too, but like some of the stuff you post, is just like, oh man, that's cool. I'd love to make yeah. something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll definitely get into that. Kind of what a, what a wild ride it's been with my, with my career with this company and kind of how I've grown through it and everything. So. Well, yeah, let's get into your backstory. How did you start in manufacturing? How'd you get to where you are now? So I started in manufacturing, God, it's probably 15, 16 years ago now. I was actually working, I was, I've been into cars my entire life. So I was working for a company, we sold race car parts, rear ends and suspension systems for Jeeps and things like that. And I was doing sales and tech support. And I kind of traveled around the country with some race teams and did some sales stuff and enjoyed that for a while. And then 2008, when the economy took a tank, people stopped buying parts for the race cars. And, you know, I was the newest guy on the staff at the time. So kind of low hanging fruit, I got cut from the team. So I was actually kind of searching around for a job. I didn't really have anything in mind. I knew I wanted to do something with race cars. And I was dating this girl at the time. And <clears throat> at her house one night, her dad had, you know, kind of heard what was going on. And he said, Hey, so uh, we're looking for a machinist at our shop, if you'd be interested. And I, you know, the company I worked for, we had a machine shop, but they were all old manual lathes, you know, lots of manual tooling. So I didn't, I wasn't super familiar with it. So I said, Hey, you know, I, I don't even know what a CNC machine is, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know what, why don't you come on by? I'll show you around the shop. He said, you're, you're pretty good with your hands and, you know, always working on stuff, wrenching on things. So he said, I think you could figure it out. So I went over to the next, the next day and, you know, it was a pretty small company. The company was called N2 Imaging Systems. And at the time, it was my my then boss, his name's Jim, and we had one other machinist there. So it was a real, real small staff. And we had, God, I don't even remember now, probably six or seven machines in there. They're all Haas machines. And he came in, showed me around, and, and literally my interview was, so anyways, this is the shop. You want to work here? <laughs> and I said... Wow. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I can't promise anything, you know, great out of this. I don't know what's going to happen, but let's find out. So a couple weeks later, I, I showed up at the shop and it literally started out with him pointing at the green button and saying, this is how you turn on the machine. And that was, <laughs> that was literally my start where I, where I picked it up. And so from there, you know, I, I got my foot in the door and, and I'm kind of working and pretty quickly, I, I realized this is something that kind of piqued my interest. And, you know, at first it was like, cool, it'll be a job that I can go work at until I find something that I really want to do. And, you know, obviously history shows it's, <laughs> it turned out what I did. You know, the crazy thing for me though, was growing up, I wasn't great in school. I always had, I was just, my head was always in the clouds. You know, I <laughs> couldn't focus. It was hard to, 
been obsessed with cars since I was a kid. So I just read all the magazines, you know, back when magazines existed. And, right. uh, oh, yeah. you know, motor trend, car and driver. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. You know, I'm going to get a lot of shit for this, but I was I was a Honda guy growing up. I, I still am a Honda guy at heart. I will talk about car stuff later. I think uh, <laughs> I think I picked up you're into cars a little bit, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so anyways, you know, I, I used to cut out this is my favorite car. I'd stick it in my binder and go to school and be like, look at how cool, you know, just just way into it. And um, then I landed this job and it was kind of it's kind of interesting to me. It was this, you know, you start reading drawings and you start having to pay attention to things and just all numbers. And I wasn't great at math and I always struggled at math in school. I was really good at English and anything writing and that type of thing and never thought this would be something I would be even slightly interested or good at. Um, what I really enjoyed about it is my boss at the time is an old school guy comes, comes from way back in the day, you know, and he's got all kinds of stories about it. And a guy like me, I, I could talk shop all day long with anybody, especially the older guys that have been doing it for 50, 60, 70 years, you know, just, and so it, it was really cool at the time. We didn't really have a lot going on. So I would come into work and it was like, all right, let's just, let's, let's put fresh coolant in the machines. Let's check the taper on the tool holders. Let's just kind of clean the shop, do organization stuff. Um, and then he decided, Hey, you know what? Let's just pull out the whiteboard and start doing math. Let's just start. Let me show you guys how to figure out how to, how to figure out true position without a calculator, without your phone. You know, let's, let's do the long form math to do all this type of thing. Let's pull out the sign vices and let's, let's get the Joe blocks. And let me show you how to set these things up to do inspections at angles and all this, you know, and, chewed it up. I could not take enough notes. I was, I was loving it. And, you know, that I probably did that for a few years. And along with that came all the, uh, learning how to machine and crashing the machine, breaking tools and, you know, all this, all the stuff you learn along the way. And, you know, a couple of years into it, I was kind of like, I enjoy machining. I'm getting okay at it. My biggest problem was I was really fast. So I was, I wanted to just, I was running across the shop, grabbing this tool, running back to the machine, loaded in the machine. I got to make as many parts as I can today. I want to show them how hard I work. All the while paying attention to tolerances, not reading the drawing, not checking surface finish, you know. And so I remember one day my, my boss sat me down with the other machinists at the time, which is the two of us. And he said, I've got a problem with both of you. <laughs> and he said, oh, you, no. he said, you, Rob, work insanely fast. I love how hard you work. I love how fast you work, but your attention to detail is shit. And I need you, <laughs> I need you to clean that up. And he, and the other guy said, your attention to detail is insane, but you are way too slow. So I need, I need like middle ground of both of you guys, you know? <laughs> and so for me, it was, okay, took that to heart. You know, I said, whenever somebody tells me I'm doing something wrong, I mean, you guys take a step back, look at it from their perspective. And I, I said, okay, he's, he's got a point. And so I made sure I tried to keep up my pace. But of course, when you're when you're going to start checking things a lot more frequently, it's going to slow down a little bit. So finding that balance of maintaining the quality we were expected to do and and hit the top tolerances and, you know, make good parts and take, you know, make parts that you can take pride in, you know, that that's what came next. And so I really started enjoying that. And then naturally after that, I said, I want to start learning programming, you know, and so then my boss was like, all right, let's, let's sit down. Let me show you how, let's write a pocket program. Let's do an op two pocket, just a rectangle and a set of soft jaws. Easy peasy. It's literally as easy as it gets for programming. And I said, okay. And you know, hour later, we're sitting there in his office. This is Mastercam. I don't know, V9, V7 is, it's an old one now. Huh. And 
And it was cool. I, I was like, oh my God, this is opening up a whole new world. And at the time, it was also, I had never done anything in CAD. All I have seen of Mastercam was when my boss would hand me a program posting it out of his computer. That's that's the only time I messed with Mastercam. So CAD was new to me, CAM was new to me, and you know, I'm probably two, three years into machining. So I'm I'm getting the hang of it. I'm I'm learning machines and things like that. And I'll never forget I he showed me that pocket routine and I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna go home tonight. I had a student edition of Mastercam, you know, you could do everything in it, you just can't post out of it. And uh, I was like, I'm this is before, you know, YouTube was you could just hop on YouTube real quick and let me just go watch a tutorial on how to do this. So right. it yeah. was a lot of trial and error. And uh, the funny thing about him too, my old, my old boss, is he grew up, he was on, he worked on oil rigs. You know, he was a police officer back in the day. He, he was a rough and tumble guy and he had, you know, I wouldn't call it a grumpy attitude, but, you know, he was a, he was a hard ass. He was one um, of those old school machinists. He was gotcha, an old yeah. school machinist, uh-huh. exactly. And he was, you know, threw, threw things across the shop, was yelling <laughs> when you screwed up. And, and the funniest thing about it was he would always say, if, if you slam a spindle into the table, I won't even get that mad. I just want to know what happened. But if you snap like an eighth inch end mill, he flew off the handle, throwing things across <laughs> the shop. He's like, I don't know what it is about the big things. They don't bother me. It's usually it's a mistake. It could be a program error, but it's the little things that just drive them nuts, you know? Well, and, so let uh, me ask you, yeah, uh, how did he deal with mistakes? Like what, because I know a lot of people are turned off by that of like, oh, these mistakes cost money and they're big. They can be very big stakes when I screw up. So, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly he, he did have a temper, but what about it made you want to keep going? Because I think a lot uh, of us are looking towards hiring and training. And that's a tough thing to deal with is like, how do you deal with employee mistakes? Yeah. And so we can get into how I handle them. But, you know, being that I've got a, a decent team under me now, and I've worked with a lot of guys over the years, you know, I I took the things that I liked about his management style and the things I didn't like his, about his management style and just kind of formed it into my own. But, you know, the way he handled mistakes was... I hate to say, you know, he make you feel stupid about what you did because that's not his intention. I think really what it's just trying to drive the point home. And it's it's one thing I've always carried with me. And it's one thing I always tell guys when they're training is if they crash a machine, you know, if I come over and ask you what happened, I want an answer. What happened? You know, if even if it's, ah, oh, man, I forgot to set my tool or I forgot to set the Z offset. I want to know what it was. I don't care if it was a mistake. But if you if you say, I don't know what the problem was, then, you know, there's nothing from you to learn. There's no lesson there. It's just, you made a mistake and now here we are, we got to start over. So, you know, it was always when you make a mistake, if you had an answer for it, he'd still get pissed, but then it was like, all right. And he tries to take that as, all right, here's what happened. If it's a one-off thing, simple operator error, we move on from it. If it's a repeatable problem, all right, let's sit down. Clearly we've got, we've got an employee problem here. We've got to sort this out. So it was a lot of, a lot of sitting down with them when I was learning but also, you know, he, he had, I, I don't, I don't mean to paint a bad picture of him because he still is my favorite boss I've ever had. I love, I still talk to him to this day. He's retired now and moved out to Ohio and he's, you know, living out on the countryside and I love the guy to death. He's an awesome guy. Um, but yeah, so learning to program and coming to him and when I have questions, it's like, oh shit, is he going to, is he going to give me, what are you doing here? Why did you do this? I wouldn't do it that way, you know? And there were definitely those moments or you know, he furiously tapping the non-touch screen, you know, it was always pointing, <laughs> click here, click here, you know, it, it was hilarious. It's one of those things. And that's what I've always told guys when, when he, we ended up growing and we had quite a few more machinists in the shop. I always told them, ignore the volume 
at what he's telling you and just listen to what he's telling you. I, I understand he's screaming and his face is turning purple, but he, <laughs> there's a message in that, you know, and, and, uh, and he, he was, he was, I call it tough, but fair, you know, he was, he was an awesome guy. But yeah, I, I think, I think that's kind of was is, is I think how we handle the mistakes was more kind of on a case by case basis. You know, if, it, if you had an answer or a legitimate reason, and sometimes he was the only programmer at the time. So sometimes it was his fault, <laughs> you know, and, right. and then of course we have to just sit there and go, oh, I guess we'll just keep our mouth shut about this one, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, so I, in taking it on myself to, I just wanted to learn to program, you know? So I just spent a bunch of time and I finally just kind of went in his office one day and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm ready. I want to take the next step. I'm ready to step up and I want to do some programming and a little hesitation at first, but he ended up letting me do it. And then from there, it was just everything exploded and kind of opened up this whole new world of, you know, I think, I really think, uh, Machinists nowadays, I really think there's a lot of value in them learning to program. I know there's a lot of shops out there that kind of want to have these button pushers. They want them to come in. You know, we pay you to stand at that machine all day. And I understand that. And there's definitely some some shops that necessitate that kind of employee. But at least at, at this shop, at the time, at the shop that I'm at now, I always try to, you know, at least at least have a moment with the guys to see what they want to do. You know, if they want to do something, you, you got to give them some kind of... I don't know, some path to look forward to, you know, a lot of these guys want to learn to program, they want to do different things. And some people are a little hesitant to step up and, and say that. Right. Um, yeah. So I, but you got to have some kind of upward mobility potential, at least exactly. even if you don't take, take it. Yeah. And really, you have nothing to lose. You know, you, you say, all right, I'm going to teach this guy to program and you start, you start programming and hey, it's not really working out. Oh, we gave it a shot. Or, you know, hey, it's working out. It's just going to be a little bit slower. So we'll just be patient about it. Or, hey, this guy, this guy is, uh, should have had him programming a long time ago, you know? Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, so I think that's kind of what sort of introduced me to programming. And, you know, programming in Mastercam was exclusively where we did everything. And, you know, again, so this is, is a company that's full of engineers. That company is owned by an engineer. Where you know ninety percent of the employees are engineers, and we always made the joke that the machine shop was just we're assistants to the rock stars. You know, we're the uh, we're the machine monkeys. We're the locker room of the company. You know, right. we're, we're the loud mouthed uh, machinists that are. You know, it's it's that type of thing. But everybody, you know, it was it was great because it kind of felt like one gigantic collaborative team, sort of driving towards that same goal. As cheesy as that sounds, it there were times that it really was kind of fun. And, and for me and, and wanting to learn different things, I mean, there's so much brain power to just go ask questions, you know, and you find pretty quickly that some people are more than willing to help you out. Some people aren't, but you know, you find the ones that are, and you just kind of, Hey, do you mind if I ask you a couple quick questions? Cause you know, it's the only way you're going to learn things is by asking people that know the answer to the question, you know, people that are better than you at what you're doing. There's really the only way you're going to learn to get better about that. And so from programming, it was, then it turned into, I, I wanted to do some CAD modeling. You know, it's, it's this point it was, you know, I get a, I get a model and we import it into Mastercam and then we write the tool pass, we output it, you know, make the parts and Mastercam was, you know, I haven't used it in years now, but it was so clunky for CAD modeling. It was, it was bad, but that wasn't what it was designed for. Right. So, uh, you know, so for me, it was like, all right, I'm ready to, expand my tool belt, if you will, you know, I want to learn some more, some more skills here. 
knowing that in the future, if you want to build fixtures, if you want to do all these types of things, you got to kind of know how to CAD model. You got to know datum structures. I mean, GDNT, you got to know that really well if you're going to create, you know, good CAD models. And so then it's like, all right, let's, that's the next step. Let's learn some GDNT, start studying that, you know, start, start getting in the inspection area, start asking inspection questions and, you know, some of the inspectors that are writing software in Calypso, you know, on those ICMMs and all that. So it's, it's learning all these things. And then at some point I'm like, if I'm going to get better at CAD modeling, I'm going to have to figure something else out because I can't do it here. Mastercam's clunky for that. And also there's no business need for it at the time. And so, you know, being, I don't know, I was probably at this point, 25, maybe 26. And I said, you know, I got nothing but free time. Let me go figure out some way to take this free time by doing some some side gigs and see what's out there, you know? And I had a buddy at the time who owned a wheel company. And, you know, he was, he was it's a pretty small company. You know, he, he has some designers and then he sends it off to shops, gets the wheels made. And I just said, you know what? Let me just reach out to him. And the funny thing was I reached out to him. I said, hey, do you need help CAD modeling? Because I don't know what you're paying, but I'll be away less than that. And he was like, <laughs> Because, you know, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And honestly, it was kind of, this was a stretch because I'm like, if he agrees to let me do this, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I got to figure this out and quick, you know, I've got a good eye for design. At least I I feel like I do. And um, I said, I think we can, I think we can do this. And he said, Hey, let's just, let's baby steps. Let's take this easy. Let's, let's try one wheel and see how it works out. And the funny thing is, I, I mean, over the years, I've designed hundreds and hundreds of wheels now. And I still have all the files and looking back on some of my original designs, I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe we cut that and put that on a car. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of trial and error in that. But what was really great about that was that was my way of saying, this is how I'm going to get better at CAD modeling. I'm just going to throw myself to the wolves and I'm going to figure this out. And so then it turned into, okay, now I'm designing these wheels and I'm making the CAD models And then I'm talking to the machine shops that are cutting these wheels. And I'm like, hey, let me write some programs for your machines. Like, hey, this is a a twofer, you know, make more money on the side. I'm good at programming at this point. I'm getting better at CAD modeling. And then that kind of turned into a a fun kind of, you know, call it a side quest, you know, or where I'm going to all these different wheel shops. I'm talking to all these different shop managers. And and, uh, there was there was a Metal Effects is a local wheel company out here. I think Mike Schott, I think was his name. I think he owns company. I remember he made a couple wheels for us at the time and we went to a shop and I remember walking in that shop and it's just full of Haas machines. You know, it's got tons of VF6s, big old lathes, you know, I'm like, oh man, this is a, because to be honest, some of the other shops I've gone to are like, what the hell? These are like Viper machines that have no memory in them. And I, you know, I'm writing toolpaths with all these dynamic strategies that the files are huge. They don't want to yeah. fit in the machine, you know, They're like you got to DNC everything or cut yeah, it up six and, times. Oh my God. And that's exactly what happened, you know? And, yep. and then they're getting all pissed at me. Like, what are you doing? Writing these huge programs. I'm like, what are you doing with those old machines still? You know, but <laughs> obviously everybody's got their, their reasons, you know, but uh-huh. anyways, so going over there, it, it was pretty quick that these guys are clearly, you know, I feel like, and I could be wrong on this, but I feel like there are more machinists that said, Hey, you know, kind of what I did. I, I can machine, I can CAD model. Let's make wheels. Let's buy machines and let's do it. And they look, their wheels look incredible. I mean, if you look at them on, on Instagram, they look nice. And those guys know their stuff. And Mike had a couple, he gave me some good advice. You know, this is when I was using SolidWorks and, um, and I had been doing it for a couple of years now. So I was, I was decent at it. And he showed me a couple little tricks that just changed my world and how I CAD model. And, and that was, that was really great. Um, 
And that continued on for a while doing the wheel thing, all while still working at N2 and, and doing the machine shop thing. So it was, you know, wake up at six, go to work, work all day, come home, hop on my laptop, design some wheels. And some sometimes, you know, when I'm getting proficient at doing this, then next thing you know, they're like, hey, can you do like 20 designs in two weeks? Can you do this and do that? And I'm like, <laughs> hell yeah, I can do it. Look at how badass I am, you know? And then this is before all the burnout happens, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, like, you're still young. That, yeah, that, yeah, like, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll stay up till 3 a.m. doing this. I don't care, you know? And so that was, that was fun. And that's, that's kind of what, uh, it really just from that point, it was just a lot of hard work and a lot of, you know, striving to get good, get better every single day. It's, you know, it's like, okay, I made this part. Now, how can I make it nicer? How can I make that surface finish? And then you hand out that rabbit hole of like, all right, my surface finish is decent, but how does it become great? You know? And so then you, then you start doing all this stuff and, and playing with different feeds and speeds and trying different tool pass strategies and talking to your vendors and getting different tools in there and trying some different stuff out. So how did you convince any of these companies to let you machine your own wheels? Because if I had a customer come to me and say, hey, here's a model and also let me program your machines to make it, I'd be like, (laughs) oh, no, we're done. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, funny thing about that was the first, so my buddy, so the company is called Aristo. He's still around. They're still doing wheels. He's up in the Bay Area now. And so I was doing CAD modeling with him. And then the first shop was in Costa Mesa out here. And. He's like, hey, let's let's see if he'll let you program it. Yeah, we didn't know if he was going to let us do it. And I go over there. Alex was the owner of the shop. And he said, it was that exact hesitation of like, who the hell do you think you are coming into my shop saying this? You know, and I said, and it was one of those kind of had that moment of like, all right, let's see if you're full of shit. I'm going to take a chance on this. Write the program. Come back tomorrow. Well, so he had a, it was a wheel for, a, I think it was a Mercedes G-Wagon or something like that. And it was, it was scrap, I think something happened on the lathe up. It was just a scrap forging. So he said, Hey, it's, it's still blank. So let's just go ahead and use this. Here's the CAD model for the, for the spun profile, throw a design in it, write some tool pass, come back tomorrow. Let's cut the wheel. I'll have it bolted in the machine. When you get off, we'll start it. And I said, all right, I made the most basic seven spoke wheel I could possibly make because I'm like, I just need to prove that I know how to run a Haas. I know how to run the controller. I know how to write tool pass. And I did it. And then it was halfway through the wheel. You know, he, he gave me that look, that side eye of like, all right, all right. You know, and it was <laughs> like, cool. so, then, so then it was, then the next step was take that design, spice it up. Cause that looks like shit. And, uh, <laughs> and let's, let's see what else you got, you know? So I'm like, all right. Then next thing you know, it's adding all these pockets and all this detail cuts. And then, you know, now this ball in mill's running for 12 hours. Cause I'm, I'm trying to prove a point with this mirror surface finish and, you know, and so the, the fun thing is that wheel is still in my garage right now. It's, it's, it's garage art. It'll forever be. No way. Fir- yeah. The first wheel I ever made. I left it raw. I never powder coated it. And uh, he said, take it. It's yours. And uh, so that, that'll a little piece of history. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of cool. A lot. And, you know, again, all while still making parts at work and, you know, f- everything we make. So we were making well, some military products and, you know, night vision systems and things like that. So our parts are small, you know, really small and insane tolerances. I say insane with confidence because I always have this argument with engineers, you know, they're always like, Hey, uh, how, how tight can that machine hold? You know, what's, what's the tightest tolerance? And I always say 10 thou, I hold 10 thou all day long. No problem. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so they go, no, 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 for real. I'm like, okay, seven and a half thou, but you're right. pushing it. You know, it is a hoss. <laughs> Don't. 
Well, that's because you give them, you say, oh, I got 20 inches of X travel and you get a 21 inch part tomorrow. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly. how it goes every time. Yep. Or or it's like that. It's like Facebook Marketplace. Like, hey, I, I saw you're selling this thing for $2,000. So I'll give you a hundred bucks for it. You know, uh-huh. it's like, oh, what is that? 10,000. Okay. Here's, here's a five, five tenths tolerance. I need you to hold that all day long, you know? Yep. So, so that was, that was what was fun and, and say fun. It was challenging, but it's, I think that's what makes it exciting. You know, you get bored if you're just making easy parts and the, the tolerance is wide open. It's just day after day after day. This this is not like that. Our, our company, this is, you know, still talking about into um, we were, you know, our I think we prided ourselves on how fast we could turn something around, you know, from an engineer's head on the machine, you know, in their hand, sometimes within a day, depending on the size and complexity of the part. And so we we took a lot of pride in that. And so it was lots of long hours, lots of long weekends, insane deadlines, insane deadlines, like it always is. But it was, it never slowed down since the day I started. I mean, we went from, I want to say it was six machines. We had, we had some super mini mills, some, I think they were built in like 2002 or something like that, you know, still trucking though. They were, they were, they were workhorses. Those things were awesome. We had an SL20 and an SL30 lathe. And what else? I think we had we had another dual spindle lathe. I don't remember what it was because we never used it and we ended up selling it um, pretty early on in my career there. But it was, you know, like I said, early on, it was, we didn't have much to do. So then we're doing all this, you know, math and all these different things. And and then next thing you know, it's like, okay, now we got parts coming. Now we got to get to work. We got to make this. And then it's like, shit, the parts aren't stopping. <laughs> They're just more parts. And next thing you know, it's like, all right, we need to hire somebody else. We need to hire more people. And then by the time, I guess we'll kind of get into it a little bit, but I know it's probably, 10 years later, we've now got, I don't know, 18 spindles in the machine and probably 15 guys or in the, in the shop, sorry, and 15 guys oh. in the shop. So we, we grew quick. And then, well, I guess depending on who you ask, I mean, some companies like, oh, really? <laughs> 13 guys in 10 years, that's not that fast. But, you know, it, it, was, it was some growth. And then the, the chaos was our company sold to a large aerospace company. So we got bought by, I don't even know, I think they're the biggest aerospace company now because they bought us and then they went and bought all these other aerospace companies and I've lost track of it now. But I'll never forget, right before this happened, we had a we had a really large production run coming up and we're, we had the conversation of, I don't think these Haas machines are going to be able to do this in volume. And it's not a knock to the Haas machines. Like I said, I, I'm still a Haas fanboy till the day I die. I love, love those machines. But it was more about, you know, automation and, and things like that. But then we also had the conversation of, you know, some of these parts do have really tight tolerances and all that. So we started shopping around to different vendors and we ended up landing with DMG Mori. And we bought, I think the PO was for, it was for four NHX 4000s, horizontals, three NVX 5100s, their verticals. So that's seven, a DMU 50 and two Sugami Swiss machines on one PO. Jeez. And so then Talk it was about like, change. oh my God. And it was, I mean, as a machinist and getting to play with all these toys, mind you, our, our shop, I mean, you've seen pictures of, of our shop and our shops have always looked like this. You know, it's, we try to keep them nice, you know, make them look really nice. But as a machinist and getting to play with these toys and you get a, you get to put a PO in for that many machines, you're like, oh my God, this is so awesome, you know? And and we get super excited. We got a $250,000 tooling certificate with Sandvik as part of the deal. And I'm like, oh my, it was the best. You Christmas know? immediately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so while that's happening, we ended up 
the company ended up getting sold to this aerospace company and they came in and then that's when shit hit the fan and everything came to a screeching halt. We went from, you know, making, if, if I needed the material, I hop in my truck, I'd run over to industrial metal supply down the street from us, go grab some aluminum, run back to the shop, throw it on the machine, or, you know, throw it in the sock, cut it, throw it in the machine, make the parts to, then it turned into, you need material. Oh, well, we've got to send it through our supply chain and it's got to, we got to get three competing quotes. And, you know, I'm like, I got to make this part today. Like, ah, oh, maybe you'll have the material in a couple of weeks, you know? Oh, and, you know, I don't want to sour on it too much. It was, it was, they owned us for a couple of years and, you know, it's, it's not a knock to the company. What it, I think what it ultimately came down to was it's an aerospace company that's so large and they've got sites all over the world and they've got this operating system and this way that they do business and it works. It works great. They're making landing gear for airplanes and those million square foot facilities. It works like clockwork. You know, they got bus stop schedules where it's like this part is coming off the machine at this time and the next part's loaded in, you know. But they come in and, you know, we're a, we're a pretty small company. We're used to being agile and quick and, and moving. And they're like, we're going to shove our operating system on you guys. And we're going to, you guys are going to make this work. We promise, you know, yeah. long story short, it didn't work. But, you know, during that time frame, in, instead of kind of sitting there and hemming and hawing and being all bummed out about it, kind of sucked at first. And you said, hey, you know what? Well, let's, let's see where we can find the positives in this scenario. And so, you know, it's a large aerospace company. There's tons of room for growth. There's nothing but upward momentum here, you know? And so then that's when I started taking on, you know, one of their big, they do a lot of lean manufacturing principles, 5S stuff. And that's when I got introduced to all the lean manufacturing. And then that was, it was like this, this spark all over again, like when I discovered programming and my passion for that. And I'm like, oh my God, this is awesome. And so, you know, then you start taking those principles and then you start streamlining the shop, making your processes more efficient, you know, doing doing all these different things. And now we're at the point where we've got 22 machines in the shop. I think we had 25 or 26 guys in there and we're running two shifts. You know, it's we're cranking out parts. Um, and so, you know, while all this is going on, you're like, okay, this this is great. And then, you know, things start falling apart a little bit. Next thing you know, oh, hey, we're getting rid of you guys. Somebody else is coming in and taking over the company. It's just this constant, you know, uncertainty of what, what the future looks like. Right. All while this is going on, my boss that I've been talking about was still my boss at this time. And he's, oh, cool. he's, he's approaching retirement. And I knew my role was once he's gone, I'm sliding into that position. I mean, I, I knew it. We all knew it. The only problem is with a large aerospace company, they said, hey, you don't have your bachelor's degree, so you can't be a manager. And I was like, well, I've been basically running this shop for the last, I don't know, six years. I've been working here for 10 years. And it, it was just kind of the, I get it. I don't really get it, but I get it. You know what I mean? Like it's, I get it. That's their process. I really think it's stupid. But they said, you know, when, it, when we get to that, we'll, We'll talk about it. We'll see if we can figure something out, you know. But for me, being told that, like, why am I going to stick around then? I don't want to. I don't want to ride this out. If if this is my ceiling, I I know I can do. I can do more, right? Um, oh, yeah. And so then, Maztec started, and I transitioned over to Maztec, and it was this. Actually, the funny thing is, the second guy, the guy that we hired. So when it was just the two of us. His name was Troy and myself, and I hired. A guy that I grew up with, his name's Charlie, who I still work with to this day. When I left, right after I left, our boss, Jim, retired. And then Charlie took over that position. So, you know, it was this moment of like, 
here I am at Maztec and you know, I was employee number, I think I'm employee number four of the company. So I was oh, on no way. really, really early on. And, and in fact, when I was hired on, they said, Hey, you know, we don't really have anything going on. If you want to hang tight for a couple months and just hang out, I'm like, I don't want to hang out for a couple months. I'm I'll start tomorrow. You know, right. I, I'd already put my two weeks in. <laughs> the really cool thing about it was the guy who owns Maztec was, you know, he knew my boss, Jim. And so we all kind of had this conversation of like, Hey, this is happening. Rob is going to leave this company. He's going to transition over here. So there was no hard feelings. It wasn't like I had to go and have this awkward conversation of, hey, I'm, I'm quitting. You know, I hate this. It was, it was none of that. I, I enjoyed every minute of it, it, you know, even all the ups and downs. But yeah, I started over here and literally had nothing to do. So um, then I hear Charlie took over that role. And, it, and it's that, did I just make a horrible life decision? Did I just screw up my career path and, and blow it, you know? But again, I'm like, okay, let's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sulk on this. I'm just going to, I'm going to keep looking forward and make the right steps. While this is going on, I, you know, Fusion 360 had started popping up and it was gaining tons of traction. And, I, and I'm very proficient with SolidWorks at this point, very proficient with Mastercam. And I said, what if there's software that combines the two? You know, and I know, <laughs> I know SolidWorks has, what is it? HSM works or yeah, what, yeah they have plugin. a few plugins now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so you can program in, in SolidWorks, but I, I said, I'm going to try this out. The other, the other funny thing about this is being an engineering company, everything was designed in metric, but we machined in inches. So every single drawing that came through the shop, we, uh, the, the engineers there use Pro-E. And so I'd hop in a Pro-E, convert the drawing immediately over to inches, <laughs> and then print it out and take it into the shop. So it's in inches. But it's this weird, it's designed in metric, it's machined in inches, it's inspected back in metric again. It's just this weird yep. you know, process. and. At the time, like, when are you guys going to switch to metric? And I'll, my boss said, when those speed limit signs out there read kilometers per hour, we'll switch <laughs> to metric, you know? And so uh, so here I am over at Maztec, and the owner goes, hey, remember that conversation we were talking about with switching over to metric? Well, uh, you lost the battle because we're, we're all metric here. And this dude's like, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You're switching to metric. And I was like, oh, wow. Hey, you know what? Why don't I just make everything change? I'm going to ditch Mastercam. I'm going to jump into Fusion full-time. I'm going to switch to metric. I'm going to go to this new shop. And, you know, I said, hey, another challenge for me. And, and you know, at first, the, the funny thing was, is, you know, when an engineer designs something, he goes, okay, well, this feature here is 10 millimeters. This one's three millimeters. At least that's the reasoning they give you when they say, this is why metric is so much easier. Except then the engineer's like, oh, this feature is 3.217 plus or minus four microns. And then you're like, oh my God. And then I'm using a half inch tool anyways. So you're just, okay, it's 12.7 <laughs> millimeters. You know, you just start converting all of your inches over to metric anyways. But yeah. then after a while, like everything, next thing you know, you're well-versed in metric. And, you know, now every, now all my conversations are in metric. And uh, we actually we actually recently did a, a job for a customer and they're, they designed the part in inches. And we don't normally take in work like this. This was a, a one-off kind of thing. And it was really funny because, you know, we just jumped right back into, okay, well, we'll inspect it in inches. We'll talk in inches. And so when we're, when I'm talking to one of the engineers about his concentricity tolerance, tolerance and we're talking about, you know, tenths, he's going, I, what is, what, I need it in metric, <laughs> you know, and you're like, <laughs> oh, all right. So it's, it's pretty funny, but, uh, you know, you pick it up pretty quick and fusion, I mean, I'm, it's, I love it. It's it's so great. And it's making tons and tons of improvements and it's just getting better and better. Um, but starting over here at Maztec, there was nothing. We had I didn't even have toolboxes in front of the machines. I had I had a VF4 
bunch more machines now, but we had a VF4, a VF1, and an ST15. So we had a couple of machines. Um, I had a VF2 as well. We had a VF2. And so I had these four machines and I had no toolboxes. I had no tools. I had no processes. I had nothing. And I said, well, great. When they said I had nothing to do, I got nothing but things to do because this is all going to take time to develop all of this. So what were you hired as? Uh, Just a machinist or a shop leader? Yeah, I was hired as a shop manager. And and so that was, you know, I could be whatever I wanted to be. I was the only employee. That was (laughs) was my official title was shop manager. And so what was really cool is all of the webinars and that type of thing that Autodesk was putting out and... um, God, I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna get killed for saying. It. I think it was Rob Lockwood did did like a webinar on on parametric vices and stocks and all that kind of stuff, or you know, parametric stock modeling and all this type of thing. I, I think it was him that did it. But uh, pretty quickly on, I started creating all these templates in Fusion. So I spent my days creating templates for programming to make programming more efficient. You know, so you you bring the model in, you joint it to your stock, and you've got some preloaded toolpaths. You regenerate them because it's all model aware. And you're now 30% into programming a part and you've only been working on it for 15 seconds, right. you know? And yeah. so I spent a ton of time doing that because a lot of trial and error. I don't know. I've never done it before inside of Fusion. I'm, I'm really good with, with software at this point, but it's just kind of figuring it out. And, and again, it's one of those things I look back at now and I go, why did I do it that way? I should do it this way now. You know, it's, <laughs> it's always looking at the stuff I used to do and getting better at it. You know, and then it's then it's talking about, okay, now let's start buying some tooling. Let's start buying tool holders. And then then we started hiring some more engineers in. And then then product development really started taking off. When I first started, we were actually making it was a night vision system for boats, for like big yachts and things like that. And oh, interesting. Um, yeah, what was what was kind of cool was uh, I got to machine the the housing for it. We still have it. It's not really dead. It just kind of got sidelined because we got so many other things going on now. But uh, yeah, so it was this gigantic chunk of aluminum. To us, it was gigantic. I think it was 20 inches by 15 inches by like 10 inches. It was this huge chunk of aluminum. That's a pretty big chunk. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I T-slot it. I put slots on the side so I could put some toe clamps. Just, I just bolted it straight to the table. And then I made a massive night vision housing out of this thing that has... Uh, I think it has six cameras in it, five cameras in it. And the cameras were, inst- I mean, this thing was so expensive. Just just the just the block of aluminum, you know, and I had to go buy an engine hoist from Harbor Freight just to get it into the machine. <laughs> and, you know, the, the funny thing is I posted it on Instagram a while ago, but bought this engine hoist, right? I spent all this time driving over to go get it, drill a hole, put the eyelid in the, in the stock. And I go to lift it in the machine and the freaking legs smack the bottom of the machine. And yep. I was like, shit. So now unload everything, flip it upside down, hop onto Fusion, whip up some CAD models for some billet legs to lower the thing. And so then I'm machining legs. So I still have it to this day. It's, the joke was with all my buddies because of all the cars that I built. They're like, God, you just have to lower everything, don't you? Even lower your shop hoist. <laughs> and the funny thing is I made it so low that when I picked up the material, it bowed the legs and then drug against the floor. <laughs> so I couldn't even oh, move no. it. So anyways, getting it in the machine was a nightmare in itself. And then we're running it on the VF4. And the front, the front of the camera has some faceted faces on it. And one of them, you got to tilt it. I think it was like a 40 degree angle or something like that. But this piece of material was so big, you know, I had to write in the code to kind of shift the table off and X a little bit for it to do a tool change. But even that, when, when the machine would kind of jog over, I'd have to have it jog over 
and then manually erase the spindle up, load the tool back in, and then start running the program from there just for the clearance I needed, you know? And at this point, I'm probably 20 hours into machining this thing. And, you know, there's there's some lens pockets on there. It's really, really tight diameters. And I'm like, if I screw this up, the location of it, the diameter of it, this whole thing scrap, you know? Worked out well. We, we still have it. It's it's actually, uh, it's kind of one of our crowning jewels, I guess, one of the, the old things we worked on. It's It's still there and it works. We actually set it up on a boat and took it out to the ocean and did some testing on it. I've got some really cool videos of it and it's, it is super cool. And so, yeah, so after that, when we started hiring engineers, that's when we kind of shifted gears and kind of back to what we're doing now, which is kind of different optic systems, night vision systems, different things like that. And, you know, so engineers are coming in and it's, Hey, we got parts we need you to make. I'm like, Oh, cool. And, you know, I'm the, I'm the programmer, the machinist, the deburr guy. I'm the, you know, I, I'm it, doing everything, tapping the parts, you know? And then, then the next thing was like, Hey, why don't we, why don't we start powder coating? Why don't we start doing Cerakote? Why don't we? So then next thing you know, we're by a powder coating oven, powder coating gun, doing this type of thing. Then the owner was like, Hey, you think you could figure out anodize? I'm like, hell yeah, I can figure out anodize. Like, <laughs> you know, why don't I just throw more stuff on my plate? And so next thing I know, I'm on an airplane to Reno to a company with that's it's these chemists. And what they do is they develop anodizing processes for, you know, companies like Boeing and Raytheon. Like they'll say, Hey, we got this new wingtip or something like that. And they'll say, can you develop, here's our anodizing specs that we'd like. Can you develop the process to do that for us? And that's what they did. And they also offered these classes that were really expensive and you come out and sit with the chemist and the other guy teaches this class. So I show up to it and it was the, the weirdest thing because I walk in, there's like six people in this classroom. It's me and five people from one company. And so first day, you know, we're going through the first half of the day, we stop for lunch and the teacher comes over to me. He's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, well, obviously I'm trying to learn how to anodize. And he goes, well, so the five other people from that company, I guess it's a company that's close by to these guys out in Reno. And when they hire these employees, it's one of their prerequisites. They have to go do this class. So they don't want to be there. You know, they're, they're, they're there just to meet their work needs and go back to work. They're not paying attention or doing anything. And I'm over here scribbling down notes and I'm like, oh, here's what I've been doing wrong this whole time. Cause I attempted it and I could not figure it out. And it, I feel stupid for saying that now because I watch so many people doing anodize. I'm like, this is not that hard. But, you know, trying to figure it out on your own and, you know, wasn't a ton of good stuff on YouTube at the time is like, I'll just kind of do trial and error. So, yeah. so, so I go out there and, you know, doing this class and I, I loved it. The class was so cool. And then the second day we go in the lab and then they're like, all right, here's now we're going to show you how you're doing it. And then I, I had to talk with the, the instructor as before I left. And I was like, question for you. And I just want you to be honest with me. We're a small company. You know, we're not, they're, they're teaching this class on the molecular level of what anodize is, what it does, you know, different composites of all the chemicals that go in. It's, it's, they're teaching stuff that I don't, it's not that I don't care about it. It's very interesting to me, but I'm like, I'm just trying to make my silver parts black. That's right. all I'm it's trying not to do. You know? You're going to think about daily when you're anodizing. Yeah. I'm not sitting here trying to keep, you know, meet the exact anodizing spec on this. You know, if we're going to do that, we'll send it out to an outside process house that can do it properly. But a lot of our parts, we just want them black. We just don't want them to corrode, you know? So that's why I wanted to do it. And everything we try to do, literally everything in house. I mean, we've got, we design our own software. We design our own circuit boards. We do design our own optics. <clears throat> we design everything in-house and we do as much as we possibly can in-house. And so anyways, so talking to him, he's like, well, I was kind of asking him, it, 
does that make sense to you? Does that seem like a really stupid idea for me to do this? And he said, honestly, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of stupid because <laughs> he's like, this isn't one of those processes that you just flip the switch on and you just go to town. You know, there's, you got to make sure the tanks are set properly. You got to make sure the right temperature. There's all these different things. You can't just do it, you know? And so I said, well, that's fine. I got what I needed out of it. And the funny thing is, I'm, I'm sure if the owner of our company is listening to this at some point, he, we're still not anodizing right now. I, I've had to have, we've gotten so busy. I didn't have time to do it. So it kind of sat aside and I've got another guy that's going to be taking that process over. So oh, he, he now has all my notes and and I've I've kind of sat down with him and said, all right, let me, let me give you the crash course on what I know about it and download this information onto you. So that's one less thing on my plate to deal with. And so, yeah, it's, it's, and then next thing you know, after that, it was, Hey, I've been, I've been looking into Cerakote, you know, and heard about it, never messed with it. And then I started looking it up. I'm like, it's not even that expensive to get into, you know, it's, it's fairly cheap. It's pretty straightforward. And so I ordered a spray gun and some different colors. And I said, let's do this. And I'm like, I don't even know why we're messing with anodizer powder coat. This is the best. Cerakote is so awesome. You know, so now we've got Cerakote, powder coat, anodized. We've got all this stuff in house. And, um, you know, it's just, then things just start getting busier and busier. So by this point, was it still just you in the shop mm-hmm. or had you hired some people? No, it was just me. And and this is kind of, this is a moment they, they would come in every now and then and be like, Hey, are you, are you sure you don't want some help? I'm like, I got this. I got this. It was, and, and to be completely honest, you know, it was just enough for me to handle because I'm pretty good at machining. So some of these, some of the parts we were doing early on were test fixtures, you know, it's like, Hey, I need this angle bracket with some holes in it or pretty, pretty straightforward parts. Um, then we started developing one of our made one of our early systems and some of the parts that were coming across my desk, just looking through the drawings, I'm like, oh my God. You know, there's a there's a, a couple of parts I wish I could show you. I can't some of the stuff I can't show. To this day, still the most complex part I've ever machined, the hardest program I've ever written. But it worked and it worked flawlessly. And I was I was pretty blown away by that. But at that point, that's when I'm like, okay, it's is I'm starting to get bogged down now. And so I hired, actually, I hired a guy that had left when I was at N2. He left there pretty early on. And then I hired him back to work with me here. And so so he and I were, you know, this two-man team just trying to kick ass and make all these parts. And it was pretty good. And next, you know, I hired a third guy. And, you know, now we're, okay, now all these parts that are coming in, these engineers are like, hey, um, these, you know, these parts are pretty complex. And I'm looking at them like, it's time for a five axis. And I'll, I'll never forget, we're, we're sitting in a con- we're sitting in a conference room having this meeting. And the owner looks at me and he's like, are you, you know, are you gonna be able to make this part? And I'm like, I think we're gonna need a five axis. And he was like, all right, let's get a five axis. And it was oh, like, that's awesome. it was literally, I mean, it was, it was that simple. <laughs> it was, but I, I also think collectively, we all, we all kind of saw the writing on the wall, you know, headed in this direction. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you start designing five axis parts, you, you kind of know what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. And at this point, I had done zero five axis work. So, you know, I previously mentioned we bought a DMU 50 as part of that that big purchase. Um, kind of a long story would end up happening with that. But my last day at N2 was so I was the project lead on getting the shop expanded. So working with all the contractors, get the walls knocked down and build the shop out to accept the new machines. And my last day was the last machine got dropped in place. And I was like, see you guys later. So, <laughs> you know, that was that. And then, and then from there, uh, you know, they, they took it over and the machines were great. They worked for them and everything. So, so anyways, I didn't have any five access experience. So I said, you know, whatever, I, I'll figure this out. And, you know, the funny thing, I think it's kind of interesting about simultaneous five axis machining is 
When people talk about five axis, they immediately think, oh, you're making turbine wheels, aren't you? You're just, you're doing the most complex five axis geometry, you know? And it's like, so you get overwhelmed, you know, you see all these programs, you see all these machines dancing around doing all, you know, all the demos at IMTS and you're like, what the hell? That's, that looks intense. Next thing you know, you buy a five axis machine and they're like, okay, it's just positional work. Right. You yeah. Know? You're doing three plus two, yeah. like 90% of the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to rotate this 90 degrees and drill some holes. I'm going to rotate this 30 degrees and machine this face, you know? So then the funny thing is then the engineers are like, oh yeah, five axis capabilities. Cool. All the parts. The next thing you know, it's like, guys, you got to chill. I, I only have one five axis machine, <laughs> you know? So now that thing's overloaded and the VF4, the VF2 are just sitting there, you know, not right. getting work. So then it's so like, the first right. one was a UMC 500? Yeah, it was a UMC 750 SS. Okay. So, so we bought that and, and uh, I, I love that machine. It's been awesome. Un- unfortunately, the shop where we were at that we just moved out of, the corner of the shop where I ended up putting the machine, I couldn't have picked a worse spot. And <laughs> it was the floor was all jacked up and it was kind of crowned. And towards the back of the shop, it was really bad. And so... Haas came in, they, they placed the machine. And again, I didn't know this, you know, I had Walker brothers bring the machine. They dropped it, put it on the floor and Haas comes back next day to start setting it up. And they said, Hey, look, we got it into tolerance, but it is barely in oh. like the back leg was all the way out and the front leg was all the way in. So it was, Oh no. And That's I was like, like the Oh worst my God thing to hear. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, okay, well that the casting's going to settle. We're going to start machining parts and this is going to settle. And you're like, dear God, I hope it settles into tolerance and not the opposite direction. Right. <laughs> and and thank God it did. So, yes. so the machine worked out great. You know, a lot of a lot of trial and error for on my end. You know, when they when they uh, set up the machine, the MRZP calibration they were using, the uh, the tech used that uh, he he programmed it for a 25.4, a one inch ball, but we had a metric ball, it was 25 millimeters. No. So all of our, yeah, all of our, and I didn't realize that until I'm making this the part I was talking about, that really complex part. And I'm like, why is this off like seven thou in one direction? And I'm then I'm looking at my program and I'm not kidding. I'm ripping my hair out going, there's got to be something in my toolpath. Did I leave stock on somewhere? What did I do? And then I'm sitting there and I'm racking my brain. I'm like, all right, I, I got to call Haas. They got to come back out here. And then so I, I called uh, I called them up and they said, so here, let's just run the MRZP again. And I said, OK. So then I pull it up and that's when I, that's when I found it. I'm like, oh, there's my problem. So I put it to 25 millimeters, ran, ran it. Machine was flawless after that part. Oh that's the God. first part after that <laughs> happened, the part came in perfect. So thank God that happened, you know. But then, you know, you also have that conversation when you're buying five axis. Do I need shrink fit holding? Do I need, you know, do I need to spend all this money? I was like, again, let's just buy the machine. Let's get it in here and let's just see what we need from there. And then next thing you know, I'm programming everything for that five axis machine. And for me, it's like, this is, this is awesome. It opens up this whole new world of machining. Um, and then kind of touching on what you're talking about, where it's kind of one big toy shop. <clears throat> That's how everybody looks at our shop, where we get to make all the cool stuff, you know, and, and I, I spend a lot of time making, you know, call it trays or just various things around the shop that are going to, you know, help things out. Like one of the guys early on, he wanted to learn some CAD modeling. And I said, all right, let's, Let's get you a fusion license. And he's hopped on CAD modeling and he designed a handle for one of our one of our fifth axis vices, you know, to to put the handle on just 3D printed it on. We have a, a Form Labs Fuse One, one of their SLS printers. Oh, cool. And so we we printed it on that. It's nice and strong. And it we're still using it to this day. This thing's awesome, you know. So start designing stuff like that, working around the shop. And and then, you know, on my free time, I'm like, 
all right, I got this five axis sitting here. What can we make with it? Let's just make something cool. And so I'm a big car guy. We had one of our mechanical engineers <clears throat> was a, a big car guy and he, he rode races on his free time. And so a couple of us, you know, we're, we're big into cars and K1 speed is just down the street from our shop. So I said, Hey, let's have a, let's have a lap battle. You know, let's, let's do a time attack so you can get the fastest time, you know, and I'll machine the trophy. So <laughs> I designed, I designed a trophy as just a, a five axis exercise, you know, if you will designed it and it was cool, but I'm like, so that was the first thing I, I made this trophy, Cerakoted it. Cause why not? Got Cerakote too. And then we went and did it and I'm like, man, this, this trophy is cool, but it could be cooler. And so, so I redesigned it, did another one. And so we still, that's still a thing. We still have that trophy. The best part was, is that engineer who road races, he's also a hundred pounds lighter than me and whooped my ass. So, oh, geez. So yeah, he, that he, alone right there. <laughs> yeah. The best part was, is he's the, uh, he's the, still the current lap battle holder, but he doesn't work with us anymore. And so when he left, I said, Hey, just, just that trophy's for em- fastest employee at Maztec. <laughs> so we're going to need to keep that. We're, we're still friends to this day. He's a, he's a really cool guy. But, you know, that's my trophy now. That's <laughs> I, awesome. I, so, uh, and, and kind of funny story about that too is uh, it's on my Instagram actually. I got hit up to do, to make some more of these trophies for the Red Bull Moto GP. I think it was in Austria. And so HJC had contacted me about making these trophies. No way. Yeah. And I said, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And so, yeah, so you have to kind of go on. I got a bunch of pictures of it. I have pictures of the process of making them. And then also what was really cool was, you know, Red Bull does tons of media with all this stuff. And there's pictures of all the winners holding the trophies on the podium, which was super cool, you know. And um, so then, you know, between doing the wheel stuff and and kind of getting my name out there, you know, I start getting contacted by like random companies and random people to do stuff. And most, most of the time I have to turn it down just because... It's just out of the scope of things I want to take on. And if I can do it in a reasonable time period and we're not busy right now, I, I really can't do any of it. We're just so slammed. But Unplugged Performance had contacted me about machining some control arms for their, their and they called the Lord Helmet, their Pikes Peak car they were racing. And it was one of those, they called me, hey, we got your number from one of the guys you were doing wheels with. And he said, you're the man, you, we could talk to you, you can knock this out. <laughs> and I'm like, when, okay, so he said, we need control arms for this car. And I'm like, for a, a model, there's a model S, you know, P100D or does no, the plaid. Right. And I'm like, that's a heavy car. It means these are beefy control arms. So I said, I'll tell you what, and I was driving at the time. I'm like, I, when do you need them? And this is Thursday. He's like, I need them like Monday. And I was like, <laughs> of course, there's yeah. <laughs> absolutely no way I'm pulling that off. But I'm the kind of person that I'm a, I'm a glutton for punishment. And I have a really hard time saying no to people, mostly because for me, I don't want it to be a missed opportunity. You know, I always want to try to explore different things and you never know where that opportunity could lead. So I kind of kicked myself for the next 24 hours and my stupid ass called them back and said, I'll do it. Send me, send me the files. Let me look at them. And then he sent me the files like, I'll do the upper arms. I can't, I can't do, I can't do the lower. So <laughs> they were, they were too big for our machine anyways, but they had another shop that was willing to do it. They said, Hey, look, that's perfect. I got another shop that's willing to do whatever arm you don't want to do. I was like, perfect. So I, I did the upper control arms on it and that was pretty cool. I, I actually have one of them. I scrapped one of them during the process because I was trying to do this. I only had, you know, essentially three days to do it. So I said, I'm going to write this program and I'm going to tab it off. I'm going to do the this super beefy control arm. I'm just going to make tabs. I don't, it's, there was not a single flat surface anywhere on this thing. So, you know, 
there's no way to fixture it. There's really no way. For, I mean, there's ways to fixture it, but there's really no way. I can't make soft jaws for this thing and hold on to it. Right. Yeah. So I, I tabbed it off and I said, you know, do you guys want me to, you know, ball end mill this surface to get these tabs off? Like, just take a, a freaking grinder to it. We don't care. We, we need to get this on the car, you know? <laughs> and I mean, I, I'm not an engineer in the sense of, you know, done very little FEA. So not enough to say I'm confident in it or competent in it, you know? But I've, I saw that I'm like, there's no way this thing is going to get destroyed. It's 70, 75 aluminum. It's, you know, and then they tell you who's driving the car at Pike's Peak. And you're like, oh my God, you know, you're, you don't want to have this scenario where next thing you know, Randy Popes is flying off the side of Pike's Peak because your control arm Because of you, you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And went well. So everything went great and it was really cool. And it was just a, it was a cool opportunity. I, you know, those guys were really cool to me and, you know, I said, Hey, in the so future, cool. we'll contact you again. If we need more work, it was, you know, haven't really heard from them since I'm, they've got their own thing going on and you know, they've got their own, their own production methods now, but you know, just another opportunity along the way to kind of expand my abilities and try different things, get my name out there. And, you How know, cool. cause, cause I think, I think a big part of it is networking, you know, and that's, that's kind of what got me to where I am now is, you know, I spend so much time talking to vendors and talking to different companies and learning new, better ways of doing the things that we're doing every day, you know? What's the shop look like now? Like how many people are you and what kind of machinery do you have? So right now, I don't know the total number. I, I want to say we're approaching 30 or 40 employees now. In the shop or in the company? Oh, in the whole company. So okay. in the shop, I've got six guys in the shop now. And so I hired... So actually, Charlie, who took over the the shop that went into imaging, ended up going out of business. And for me, that was... Oh, I was... I felt bad, but then I was also excited because I'm, <laughs> I'm hiring all you guys. So I, I, right. I grabbed a couple of the machinists, brought them over, one of the programmers. And, and man, that because, you know, you get to this point where we're growing so fast. I, I literally I'm getting pulled in a hundred different directions every day and, you know, interacting with all the engineering department and, and talking about ways to make the designs more manufacturable and how are we going to do this in high volume? I don't have time to do that and be in the shop all day writing programs. And, and I mean, if you, our job key right now is unreal how much work we have and every monday morning we we have a meeting where we go over the entire list and we talk about okay we only have x amount of time this week so let's talk about what we can get done this week you know sometimes like most engineers that things start to get derailed and and you're heading down this path like well three months from now we need this like oh well, guys guys let's let's talk about what we need this week you know yeah. you're like i've got and, 240 hours of manpower this week yeah exactly what can we do like, exactly you know and you've got all these program managers and and their program is the highest priority you know it's like i want these parts first i want these parts first and it's like this constant okay let me let me try to get i'm trying to make everybody happy you know we got to right. get everybody what they need because literally all of these programs are are critical to the success of the company yeah and i don't ever want a scenario where we're in a meeting and it's got well right on the machine shop you yeah. know i don't ever want to hear that sentence and so for us it's like whatever we got to do to get this done yeah but at the same time if everything's on fire nothing's on fire so, like you know, <laughs> it, it's funny you say that so charlie and i when we were at N2 for a while, we we uh, had cubicles next to each other, and we we took those the center wall down. We called it our super cube, and I had this <laughs> I had this giant whiteboard, and I was so sick and tired of all these. Pro this is when we were owned by the aerospace company, and I was it was nothing but program managers there, you know. And so I was so sick and tired of them coming in and telling me everything was hot. We drew it. We drew a Scoville scale. And I'm like, all right, we've got <laughs> ghost pepper, we've got tapatio, we've, you know, where on this scale is it hot? And so what I would do is they would come and say, oh, this program, oh, that's that's definitely a cayenne pepper, no problem. So I'd take a, I'd take my marker and I'd write that program name. So when another program manager came in, 
And they go, oh, this one's that hot. I'm like, nope, 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 because that program is that hot. So it's either hotter than that or it's not as hot as that. And, you know, when, and they would get so annoyed when you did it. But I'm like, hey, this is you, not everything can be hot, you know, because at some point, if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and when you do that, then things are going to fall by the wayside. You know, you, you're going to start missing deadlines or, you know, and I don't ever want that to happen, you know. Right. Oh, yeah. So, so it's, it's just constant, you know working with these guys, figuring all this stuff out. And and I, I do love working with them. You know, it's, it's such a cool, especially the company now where we got mass tech, you know, we will sit in conference rooms and it's really cool seeing everybody kind of put their input. I mean, all of our products that we release are going to be, you know, there's some sort of touch of, I feel like every employee in that product, some input, some regard, you know, and whether it's software, whether it's electronics, whether it's optical, whether it's mechanical, you know, and then, and also it's kind of cool being in the role that I'm at where then they come to me and say, Hey, here's a design we got. Um, is it machinable? And, you know, most of the time it, it is, you know, we've had, we've had a couple of junior engineers along the way. It's like, okay, where do we, where do we even start with this design? You know? <laughs> um, and it's, it's so it's kind of cool. And then it's, it's also funny too, you know, there's a lot of stuff fusion can do that pro E can't do. I, I don't know what they all are. Cause I don't, I'm not super familiar with pro E. But when you come in, you're like, I'm going to click this feature and just the delete key and just, you know, remove this feature. Like, wait, you can just do that from a step model. And I was like, yeah, it's great. And so I, oh, I'll take man. their models and, you know, and, and Fusion recently released, or I guess not very recently now that, you know, their manufacturing model option and all that. I still hate that. So I just take the model, duplicate it, and then delete all the crap out that I don't want and just have a dummy model. I'm the same way. It's yeah, just easier I, I don't for use me to manufacturing do manufacturing model at all. Yeah, but yeah, the, the direct editing, I think, is such an undersung hero oh of Fusion God. for manufacturing. It really it's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so we have, you know, amongst all the employees, so we we now have, I guess I need to touch on our Montana factory too. I haven't talked about that yet. Probably about two years ago, we had a program that we're working on. It's actually what on our website, our X4 FCS system that we're coming out with. We needed a place to machine that. And our shop in Irvine was, I was 2,500 square feet. You know, I'm, I'm now at this point, we've got UMC 750, the VF4, VF2, VF1, ST15. We then bought an ST25Y, the UMC 500 SS, um, on top of building out an inspection room and we had this giant desk and it's kind of a funny story about this desk. I, I'm trying to get rid of it. I've been trying to get rid of it for years because it takes up so much floor space, but it was custom made. It's so nice, but it's right in the middle of the shop. I finally kicked the desk out of the shop and we plopped the UMC 500 right where that desk was. And now there's no more space in the shop to move around, you know? <laughs> and so, so now is the Montana one, the one that I've seen on your Instagram, that's like in its own cul-de-sac and you guys yep. are building buildings. Yep. That's the one. So we bought 30 Uh-oh. acres of property out there. And it's, what's really cool about that is, is I got to be involved with that from the ground, from ground zero. I mean, we literally, we we're talking to contractors and pouring the foundation and all every step of the way I got to be involved with that. And it was, it's really cool, you know, seeing that. And not only, I mean, our, our AC ducts or the HVAC ducts, they're painted our, we have a, an RAL number for our red they're painted our Maztec red color, you know, like that one, we pulled out all the stops. That's going to be our showpiece. The The concrete is polished concrete. I didn't want any epoxy in there. It's like polished concrete. So it, it looks good always. And then, you know, so we're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to plan this building, right? It's going to be 10,000 square feet. We've got plenty of space. So we have, uh, I don't know if I ever uploaded it. We have a drawing of the kind of future plans for th- that space. We have the one building there's, 
there's enough space for four more buildings that are planned. And so that's kind of why the road has that that cul-de-sac. It's a circle in front of the first building, but they're going to be in a radial pattern. So we built the center building first. So we'll build the next two buildings at 45s from that. And so, yeah, we did kind of laid some of the asphalt work, did some some parking stuff and had a, had a cool sign put up the other day in front of the building. And, and you know, it's seeing this come up, you know, my first trip out there and again, I, I was born and raised in California. I've barely been out of the state. And so we're building this factory, you know, and the, and the owner goes, you're going to move to Montana, right? And I was like, ah, we'll, we'll see, you know? So, uh, <laughs> so the funny thing was, is the first trip out to Montana, it was like, all right, building's just about done. We're, we're, you know, 80% done with the building. Their drywall's going up. They're doing some paint work, but we were starting to deliver some equipment out there. So we had, a, we had bought a, a Zeiss Contura. So that was getting delivered out there and a bunch of other, we have some temperature chambers and that kind of thing for testing and a clean room out there. So this is all getting built. Like we got to fly to Montana because you got to unload it from the truck with the forklift and get in the building. I'm like, cool, let's go. It's February and I'm in California. It's 72 degrees. I'm wearing shorts, you know, we land in Montana. It's negative eight degrees. It's oh, like, geez. It's, it, and I, I mean, it was cold. I don't even know how, how hard it was blowing. And I'll never forget. We get to the factory. We show up. We had, we had rented a forklift. They show up and we went at a warehouse forklift. They showed up with, I forgot what you call these types of forklift where it has like the boom on it. It's like for putting stuff on roofs of buildings. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God. And I've got to unload the sensitive equipment in negative eight degree weather. And so we get to the factory, I hop in the forklift, everyone hops in the Suburban, throws the heater on, rolls the window down and goes, you got this, you know, and oh. snot's <laughs> running down my face. It's freezing to my upper lip. It was, it was hilarious, you know, and that was oh, my first man. experience with Montana, but also, you know, driving through the Valley. So it's, it's about 30 minutes outside of Missoula and that drive is just gorgeous. Everything out there is just, it's insane. It's like a, it's like a Thomas Kincaid painting, you know, it's just it's so unreal where sometimes you're sitting out there going, man, get some good views out here in California. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's a different, it's a different animal out there. So and, why was uh, Montana chosen for the factory? You know, I mostly, I think the land was pretty cheap out there. You know, 37 acres out in Montana is a lot cheaper than 37 acres in California. Oh yeah. So, yeah. and you know, there's, the owner has a, has some property out there too. So he spends some time out there and I think he, you know, just drive by, saw it for sale and kind of made sense. You know, that definitely comes with the turtles. And, you know, you're unfortunately some of the stuff you can only think about so much are, I think I wouldn't call it a problem, but we do everything at 3000 miles an hour. We don't do anything half-assed. It's like we make a decision and we go and, you know, I made the joke all the time about our vendors. If, if you're a vendor for us, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Cause when I call you, I'm like, I need this. I'm like, I need it overnighted. I need it like AM delivery. We need it tomorrow, <laughs> you know? And it's, feel bad sometimes because it's like, I need, we really need this, you know? Oh yeah. And, um, and I, I understand. And so you sure. find, yeah, you find pretty quick who the vendors are that you can count on, who you can't count on and, and you stick to the ones that you can, you know? And so, so we get this building done and then I said, all right, we got to buy machines. What are we going to buy out there? And I'm like, ah, you know, what are we making? Cause you know, we knew what we were planning on making, but the design wasn't done. So I haven't seen any of these parts yet. And I'm like, well, it's impossible for me to plan a machine shop around not knowing what I'm making. What if we need a shop full of Swiss machines? What if I need nothing but lathes? What if I need nothing but three axis machines? Cause they're all simple. I, you know, I need to know, but instead we're like, okay, well we don't know yet. So let's just pick something. So I said, all right, we bought three UMC 500 SSs and we bought the 16 station pallet pools for them. And I went all out. We bought the 15,000 RPM HSK spindles on. 
we bought automatic. We bought them basically like, in fact, King Machine was our, our dealer out there. They're like, we haven't seen an order like this ever come through here. Like it's, <laughs> it's like, it was like somebody went on the website and said, yes, 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 yes. Give me right. all of that. Pick you know? everything. Yeah. yeah. And so, so yeah, we bought three of the UMCs. We bought two of the VF2s, the VF2 SSYTs. So you get the extra Y travel, the super speed. And then we bought the pallet pools for those, which were brand new at the time. And that we can get into that in a second. But and then I bought two ST25Ys with the bar feeders on them. So we got a pretty good mix of machines to kind of handle, you know, a good mix of parts. Um, so, you know, next, my next step was, okay, now I have to design the shop layout. How are we going to fit all these machines in there? It's 10,000 square feet, but it's 10,000 square feet for the whole building. So I think our shop is, I want to say it's 5,000-ish, 6,000 out there. The rest of it's, we have a clean room and some labs and things like that. And some, we have a conference That's- room and some small offices. That's a lot of machinery for 5,000 square feet. It is. Yeah. And so, especially with the pallet pools, those are not tiny. Yeah. The pallet, first off, those pallet pools are unnecessarily large. They are huge. And so, so I buy these machines, right? And okay, now I know what I'm getting. Now it's time to lay it out in Fusion. So let me, let me start laying this out, right? The perfect layout. It was awesome. And next thing you know, we're getting these calls from Hasa. Hey, your VF2 order is delayed. Okay. Well, you know what? A couple weeks, like, no. Now, mind you, to be fair, we did buy these at the height of the pandemic. Supply chain issues were insane. You know, it's this, but it also we bought, I think we have serial number like nine and 10 or 10 and 11 of these pallet pools. Jeez. So I saw it. I'm like, yep, pallet pool. We need it. You know, and then it's like, and to be fair to Haas, the reason they were delaying it is, and because I, I drove over to the factory in Oxnard. I'm like, we got to find out where these things are at, you know? <laughs> and because we have this, we have this program coming up. I, I need these machines. And Haas, you know, they were adamant, like, we're not shipping these until we know they're right. You know, we want to make sure it's right. And they took their sweet time with it. That's for sure. But, you know, we got them. The problem was my UMCs were ready and my lathes were ready. And my VF2s were still months out. So now we have this tough decision to make. Are we going to pay storage for these machines to sit out here? You know, because I come from Oxnard to get them up into the valley. They go through Salt Lake City. There's a guy out there that kind of stores a bunch of machines. And so our option, because Haas is like, get your shit out of our warehouse, you know, like, because, you know, I don't know if you've been to their factory in Oxnard. It's insane. It's the amount of machines they pump out of there is wild. So the last thing I need is my five machines clogging up their, their, their shipping area, you know? Right. <laughs> so... So they said, all right, your machines are going to be ready. They have to leave. So they're either going to Montana into the shop or they're going to go into storage. And we don't want to pay that storage. So I had to change the entire layout of the shop because the where I had the VF2s going, you couldn't bring them in after the fact because other machines oh. would be blocking it. So now now we're scrambling to, to do this and that. So I had the lathes installed and the riggers left. So we used Montana Crane came in and moved the machines in and they left. And I was on the flight home and I'm looking through my pictures and I'm like, I don't think I placed those lathes in the right spot. I think they've got to go like six more feet towards the wall. And sure enough, I, I had, I took all the measurements, fortunately, you know, the reason it was hard is I had them at a 45 degree angle. So it's really hard with a bar feeder and a lathe with this giant chip shoot coming off the side of it. You're like, it's really hard to pick a point to measure it from, you know? So I kind of eyeballed it where I thought it was. And then next thing you know, like, nope, they're not in the right spot. So then I had to order machine skates sent him out to the shop. And then I, I took one of the guys. I'm like, we're hopping on a flight tomorrow. We got to go to Montana, oh, no. pick up the machine, put it on the skates, push it six feet and then fly back home. That's exactly what we did. So you know, we got it done. And you know, now the good thing is the VF2s are there. All the machines are there. They're up and running. We ended up hiring a couple guys out there. So we got some guys kind of moving things along. And then, um, you know, 
website is it's x4fcs that's what's all over our website and we're we're getting pretty close to finishing up that design we're just you know we want to make sure that thing is perfect before it gets released to the public and you know we're getting ready to to turn that shop on and so you know now we're at this point where we've got we've got quite a few programs going on here along with this commercial system we're going to be doing out there and we don't have any programmers out there i don't i only have one machinist we we hired a general manager to kind of manage to kind of oversee the whole site but what's cool is he's got a good manufacturing background so he and i get along really well we communicate really well and it's cool they've got you know they got a drive to want to do this and so it's it's really great the machinist out there he's you know he's a go-getter and so it, it's it's been great it, it's a little tricky you know how do you train somebody how to program and and run machines remotely it's right. it's, it's always yeah, going to exactly. be a, a challenge so far it's working pretty good we ended up reaching out we they ended up finding some contract programmers out there in the valley that were are able to kind of support for now and um, so we're definitely looking to hire guys out there, you know, in, in that area, some programmers and machinists, and that shop will start to grow now too. Awesome. So where does the Kitamura fall in oh, all of this too? Yeah. So, why Kitamura? You know, you seem diehard, you know, so, bleeding Haas. So, yeah, so the, why the, Kitamura and where does that come in? That's a fantastic question. Um, so I was, there was this week where we have this one part that goes into FCS. It's it's the optical bench. It's it's the heartbeat of the system. It's the tightest tolerances, the tightest. I mean, it's this part is tricky to make. And so, you know, if you looked at the part, it's actually pretty. It's a pretty simple part, but it's the tolerancing on it, the surface finish on it. Everything has to be perfect because if this thing's off at all, this thing doesn't work. So it's it's got to be perfect. So so I said, oh, we'll just do it on the Haas. No big deal. And then you find out, yeah, actually, it's kind of a big deal. It's And it's not, again, it's not a knock to a Haas, but the tolerance on this thing, we're talking plus or minus microns on some of these tolerances. And so we're just getting to the point where the Haas couldn't do it. The funny thing about it was where the machine was placed in the corner of the shop, when the sun, around two o'clock, when the sun was kind of at the back of the building, it starts heating up that corner of the shop and the <laughs> casting would start to shift on the Haas. And then, you know, next thing you know, like, so you come in in the morning and you'd like, dry run the program like three times just to make sure it's good, stick the part in there and then, you know, stick it on the CMM and you're watching it get closer and closer and then bam, it's on tolerance and you get like four parts and then now the sun's up and now it's getting hot and it's like, right. shit, now we're out of tolerance, you know? And, and again, that's not an octa Haas. It's just Haas will tell you themselves, you know, that's, that's pushing it for what those machines are capable of. And so we had this tough conversation of like, okay, what, how do we make this part? What machine are we going to need? And I went, oh, we're buying a Kern. Because for me, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm like the ultimate machine, the ultimate toy to play with, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to buy a Kern. And our, our Haas factory outlet in, in Montana or in uh, Idaho, they were saying, Hey, uh, go buy, go talk to Kitamura. Cause I, so I went out to, to Montana, did some stuff out there. And then I flew home for two days, flew to Chicago for IMTS. And I was like, all right, my, literally my soul, I went out there by myself. My sole purpose was to find the machine that was going to make this part and buy it. Not like, hey, go out there, let's take a look at it. Go find one that's for sale because again, we can't we have no patience. You know, it's like, I want to buy this machine and instead of sending it back, put it on the truck and put it put it in my shop, you know? <laughs> and so so I walked around and I brought the part and I brought the drawing with me. And I'm like, I'm gonna go talk to every applications engineer for all these companies, you know? I went by Heller and I was talking to these guys and I'm like, okay, there's this, this is ridiculous. I don't, this, the part, I mean, 
for a size, it's, you know, it's like the size of a computer mouse. It's tiny. Right. It's like, if you know, it fits on a med center, it's a tiny part. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's a good way of putting it because it's got a very small work envelope. Yeah. So I ended up, went by Kern. Of course, I'm going to talk to these guys, you know, and they got a six month lead time at the time. And I talked to their engineer and it was really funny because I, I showed him the drawing and I, you know, he didn't mean laugh about it, but he's like, 10 microns. That's, that's nothing on this machine. You know, that's, this will hold this all day long. And, and, to, you know, to be honest, he, he straight up told me that I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's this machine's probably overkill. Cause I think at IMTS, they had their, the HD. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it was a customer's machine anyways. Cause I'm like, is this one for sale? I'll buy it. And he was like, yeah, no, no it was already Mickey's and yeah, he was it, taking it off. <laughs> so it's funny how when, when you had asked me to be on this podcast, I went back and listened to some of them. I listened to that one. I'm like, Oh, that's his machine. That's kind of funny. Yeah. So yeah, so like, yeah, no, this is the customer's machine. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, hey, you know, maybe look at this machine. Um, and then so I was like, all right. And I went by Kitamora. And it was funny because I honestly I'd kind of forgotten about going by the Kitamora booth. And I kind of stumbled into their booth, like, oh, that's right. I meant to come by here. And immediately I saw that med center. And I was like, okay. So I kind of peek in and they're, you know, they had that little football they had on display. And I'm like, okay, that's about the size of the part we're making. So then I start looking and I'm like, okay, this, this thing's pretty, this thing's pretty cool. So I just start talking to him, you know, show them the drawing. They kind of do the same thing. They start laughing like this machine will do that all day long, you know? So I start looking around, you know, it's, so it's, it's a med center. It's got their, we have the first one, the first customer that bought a 24 station pallet pool for it. Oh, you know, no. <laughs> they had their, they had their 12 station pallet pool, but this is their first time with the 20 station or 24 station. It's also got the 120 tool add-on. It's got the chip conveyor. I bought a Rosedale chip filter for it. We bought a, uh, MP Solutions, the uh, the coolant chiller. You know, we're kind of like, let's just give this the best shot it can at making good parts. And so when we're, to, we're at, my, I'm at IMTS and I said, all right, hit me with it. What's the price? They hit me with the price and I was like, oh, wow, that's much more enticing than I thought it was going to be. You know, when you talk oh, it's to really well priced. For yeah. What when it is. you talk to Kern and you're like north of a million dollars, if you, if you optioned it appropriately, you know, you're like, okay, it's, that's expensive, you know? And so this thing was, it was, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm definitely interested. So the hilarious thing is I literally, they hand me a, the brochure for it. Right. And I'm like, cool. I talked to him for probably two hours, just hanging out at the booth. Um, and then I said, I'm going to go walk around the show, check some stuff out. I literally, I text a picture of the brochure to the owner. I'm like, hey, this is a machine I'm looking at, you know, check it out on the website, look at the specs, you know, but I think it'll do it. He called me like five minutes later. He goes, do you think it'll do it? I go, no, it'll do it. He goes, buy it. And <laughs> I was like, what? Oh my goodness. You know, there's, there's obviously more of a conversation that, but it was about that quick, you know, and, and, you know, they pulled the sales tactic and I'm, I don't doubt it for a second, but they said, hey. There's like nine other people in line looking at this machine. And and I guess Kittimore had flown some people out just to look at it. And I said, okay, so we got to jump on this pretty quick. You know, sales tactic or not, it's it's a machine. It's available. I can buy it and get it in the shop pretty quick. It'll do what I need it to do. And then so I went back to my hotel, slept it off. And then next morning, went back. I was like, let's do it. Sign the papers. And I, you know, I'll never forget sitting down. I'm like, I thought I was going to throw up. You know, you see these giant numbers and you're like, I'm putting my name on this right now. It's like... And this was like my call to make it like, this is the machine I'm, I'm guaranteeing this machine will do it, you know? And if like, if it doesn't work, it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to go well, you know? So that, that's a little bit of foreshadowing because I remember in your stories when you got it, there was quite a bit of dialing in. So yes. talk to me about lessons learned on holding 10 microns or five microns yeah, or something so, like that. So the, you know, the, the funny thing about it is at IMTS, it had, you know, so again, I, I've come from Haas machines, right? So 
it's this feeling of like we bought this machine and now I'm overwhelmed of I got to learn a whole new controller. I mean, it's it's a new machine, let alone, but it's a new controller, you know, and it's 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 a Mitsubishi controller with the aromatic software overlaid on top of it. And right. So it's this overwhelming feeling. Oh, my God. So um, they said, hey, look, it's the first pallet pool in North America. We want to make sure this thing's right. So their North American headquarters is in Chicago. So from IMTS back to their factory. And they said, we need it for like four weeks. Is that okay? I'm like, no problem. Yeah, no problem at all. So I said, cool, we're going to take it back. We're going to run it through some stuff. They're also going to put some software back on it because they had some prototype software on it. They were kind of showing what's coming in the future. So they put it back. And then then I got the call. Then then they came in and said, hey, this remember that part we're going to try to make? Yeah, we want to make it in like two weeks. And I'm like, two weeks? The machine's not even going to get shipped for four weeks. And they're like, yeah, we need to we need to get that reeled in a little bit, you know. Oh no! So, like I said, when, when I say we go, we go, you know. So the next thing you know, I'm on the phone with Kitamore, like, "You guys done yet? You guys done yet? You guys done yet?" And you know, they they ended up finishing up. They shipped it out to us, and then then began the process of learning the Kitamore and and learning what the pitfalls are of being one of the first people to own one of these things. And so, you know, I have to give them credit because it, it was very frustrating at the time, to be honest. You know, of like eight weeks of going back and forth of... So what we did is we made this cube. And so you know, I've got in, in the shop here in Irvine, we've got a Zeiss Micura for inspection. So we've got a really high precision machine to check this stuff. So I said, I'm going to make this cube. And Kitamore sends you this, it's like this spreadsheet. And, it, and it's, you kind of machine these pockets in a cube and then take all the measurements. You fill out the spreadsheet, you send it back to them. They do their calculations. They say, hey, change this parameter, that parameter. You're good to go. Which was like six weeks of going back and forth of that. So then wow. it started getting escalated because even Kitamura is like, okay, this something's going on here. We got to figure this out. Um, so, and Masco, who's our, our local sales guys, that, that's who we bought it through. They were in my shop literally every single day for eight hours a day. I mean, that's why I have to give them credit. They were there every step of the way to support us and make sure we got this right, you know? And you know, honestly, the days of frustration of like, am I, is this machine going to be running soon? I got to make these parts, you know? Um, so they ended up finding, we ended up pulling off, it's got a three R system on it. We ended up pulling it off and found the smallest of chips that was like embedded into the bottom of it. So we took a diamond honed and kind of hit it and it, you could see it. I mean, so we're using micron indicators to try to level this thing. If you run an indicator across it, it would jump up like two or three microns, but you know, this, this brochure, this will come back to be hilarious because the brochure says positional accuracy within plus or minus one micron, right? And I'm like, that's a bold claim. <laughs> that really you know? is, yeah. So at the show, they tell you, well, hey, look, there's an asterisk on that, right? It's it's in a linear axis. It's on the x-axis, it's on the y-axis, or it's on the z. It's not all of them combined. Right, um, it's not also, volumetric. It's it's single axis, yeah. Yeah, also, it's like Redna Shah saying their probes are accurate within a quarter of a micron. It's like, yeah, maybe in the perfect environment, you know, and 99% of people aren't running it in that, you know? So you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt, you know? And so... But again, we're trying to hold their feet to the fire. So I'm sending them these results and they're like, yeah, you know, we're going to, we're going to change this. We're going to change that. But nothing was happening. And it's like, you get to this point and we ended up finding it. It was kind of buried in deep in the ladder on the software. There was some parameter that was just out of whack. It was the, I think it was the temperature uh, compensation parameter. And so we think what was happening was it was reading the room temperature and just throwing things out of whack. So they caught that one night, did a ladder update. Updated it the next morning. I punched the parameters in and boom, it came out perfect. And once it came out perfect and I was like, cool, we hit it once. Let's do it again. And it did it again and again and again. 
And I have, I actually had a picture of it. I don't know if it's still up or not. I had a picture of all, I did like eight CMM reports back to back to back. And I think one of the dimensions shifted like two microns. Every other dimension was within one micron. Some of them were perfectly zero. And our Mycura, I mean, we have it in a temperature controlled environment. It's, it's accurate. So I trust those results. I mean, they, we were trying to, to hold them so tight. They were even, you know, not getting mad at me, but they're like, hey, you're giving us results. Let's just make sure your CMM is good. So then, then I was getting mad because I'm like, I get it, you know, in perspective. They, hey, we're checking on a machine that's not giving us good numbers. Are we just chasing our tail? So at first you get frustrated, like, don't try and pin this on my CMM. But then I'm like, you know what? They got a point. What if it is the CMM? Well, it wasn't CMM. I, I checked that. It was, that thing was, <laughs> that Zeiss is awesome. My goodness. Yeah. So they, so they fixed that. And then it was like, man, this is awesome. And then cool. Now we got these cubes done. It's calibrated. This machine's running. Those guys were great, you know, helping us out, get this thing going. Now it's time to make the part. So I load the part on the machine. And again, this is, we're talking programming and fusion and Fusion has, I think Breaking Taps has his med center. He talked a little, a little bit about it with the post out of Fusion and you going mm-hmm. through Camplete and all that. You know, so it's like, okay, now I got to learn Camplete. So sit down with one of the Kidamore engineers for probably, I don't know, three or four hours over the phone going through and, and getting Camplete set up, showing me how to use it. And then me start asking, how do I customize things? You know, like I want to, I wanted to do certain things. Like for example, it's got, you know, it's got M8 to turn on the spindle coolant. But on the side, it's also got this kind of curtain coolant. So it, it keeps the chips from blasting over to where the window is at, where the pallet pool comes in. And I think that runs off an M53. And, you know, Fusion would not put the M53. So I just went into Camplete. And if I, Fusion, I believe it's like a through spindle and flood coolant or something like that. It puts two M codes. And I just made Camplete tell it to output those two codes. So now it, now it comes on. Fast forward a little bit. We moved to the new, the new shop. They sent a, an engineer out from from Chicago to, to help set it up. And he actually repinned the connector for me. So now the M8 just turns them both on. So oh, I nice. Him, yeah, I was telling him how I did. He goes, oh, I'll just repin the connector. And I was like, oh, that's, that sounds great. That seems like a simple solution to the problem. So, so it wasn't it, even a problem. It's just how I wanted to do it. So did that machine end up in Montana then? So that was a, initially the plan. The plan was we'll send it to Montana because it's a, you know, it's going for the production program. Except for me, it's like, I'm not going to learn this machine remotely and I'm not going to be flying to, to Montana every week to go figure this thing out. And in hindsight, it was the right call. You know, don't get me wrong. It was an expensive call because now we have to pay shipping from Chicago back to California. And then if we decide back to Montana, you know, plus all the setup fees and it's just expensive to move this machine. Um, turns out it was the right call because it's, you know, taken us a long time. But once we got the part on the machine, then it was like, cool, it's, I got Camplete to output the post the way I wanted it to do. Now we're making the part and, you know, there's a pocket and I'm telling you, I'm telling you to cutter comp the tool, three microns. It's moving at three microns. We're using solid carbide, three flute end mills, you know, and, and it's doing it. I was granted, we were using Rego fix holders. So we bought the the power grip setup. you know, we bought the, the machine and I'm like, and like I said, we pulled out all the stops on this thing. Like we're going to give it the absolute best shot to make the best parts it possibly can. So we bought the Rego fix, you know, we bought the coolant chiller, all this stuff. We even bought, we bought the Rendishaw system. We got an OMP 400. So we got the more accurate spindle probe and, you know, it's, so that kind of, and then also automated solutions is, is Rendishaw guys helping us out and they're awesome. You know, they're going to help me. They, they created some programs for me, some, some macros and things like that. And then 
and like, hey, anything you want to do when you get this thing into production, you wanted to come in and probe this and do that. We'll come back. We'll work with you. We'll write whatever you want to do. It's like, you know, we're talking a production machine with 24 stations. I want that thing to run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, I want to have the guy come in, change the parts out on the pallets and you just run these parts all day long. Right. Yeah. Um, it's any broken tools, all yeah, that stuff or worn tools, anything like that. Yeah. And, and once it was dialed in, like I said, it's the thing is just deadly accurate. It's it's insane. The the craziest part about it was it took us so long to get this thing set up. And then next thing you know, we're like, uh, we've outgrown this building. It's time for the move to another building. And I was like, oh my God, we just got this thing running like two months ago. And we're making parts on it. And just the thought of unhook, just unscrewing one of the legs to knock this thing out of alignment to get it to, I'm like, I don't even want to think about it, you know? So I, I call up, I call up our sales guys. I'm like, Hey, so I got some good news. I got some bad news. The good news is I got this beautiful shop, 18,000 square feet, huge growth. This is going to be awesome. Bad news is got to move that machine and I got to move it. I'm like, <laughs> we got to move it pretty quick. And there, and you know, you just hear the, on the phone, like just the deep sigh of like, here we go again, you know? And so I, I said, here, here's what I want to do. You know, I'll take care of all my Haas machines. I use Walker Brothers for everything. These guys are awesome. They've always done right by us. I said, I'll take care of all that. I'm just going to send you one PO. I want you to pick it up. I want you to pack it up, pick it up, move it, set it back up. I want to be, you know, I just want one PO for that. Just be done with it, you know? And so, um, you know, unfortunately, it did take a lot longer than I anticipated. I had all eight of my Haas machines up and running, making parts within three days of being in the new building. And it was another, I don't know, four weeks <laughs> at this other building. And, uh, oh. you know, there's a lot going on with that. They they actually, they asked me if they could fly some engineers out from Chicago to train them on it. You know, it's it's, it's a new machine. We had the first one in, in existence. So, you know, hey, let's get some training on it in the real world environment. And so there's there's some time that that takes up. You know, it's it's going to be just takes time for them to do that. So they're not going to be going as fast as they can, you know, but now it's in a new building. And and this time we're like, we're going to build a room around it. And so I posted that today of kind of where we're at with the, with the build out on that area. And so, um, you know, it was kind of funny. We had, it was a Monday morning. We were in our meeting talking about priorities and I get the call from Haas that my UMC 500 and my ST 25 Y were ready for delivery. They said, Hey, they're ready. We could have them there Wednesday. And mind you, I had that stupid big desk in the middle of our shop. And I was like, cool. Walked out of that meeting and that's the call I got. So I'm like, awesome. The machine's going to be here in two days. And it's like, oh shit, the machine's going to be here in two days. I got to get the electrician out here, get power to this thing. We got to get this desk out of here. So I have a picture of it. There's a, a we placed the, the machines right in the middle of the shop. And my electrician had already pre-run a bunch of conduit and power and all that on, you know, on that Monday, Tuesday. And on Wednesday... I'm in the shop. The machines are here now. Walker Brothers dropped them off. And so now we're in the in the shop and they come in and say, hey, come with us. We found the other building, we think. We want to go, go look at it. You know, let's, let's all go take a look at it. And you're like, okay. Mind you, our plan was like, hey, we're going we're gonna to ride out the rest of this year in this building. We'll start looking in January. Our lease is up on our building in April. April's when we're making the move, you know? Two weeks later, this is what I get. You know, hey, we're going to go look at this building. We think we found it, you know? So we walk over to what is now our new building and it was like, we all kind of collectively went, yep, it's, it's a good, it's a huge warehouse, you know, it's wide open space, big growth from where we were at, but you know, there's a lot to do there. There's, it has more than enough power. It's an insane, I, I forgot how many amps the thing, it's insane how much power this building has. It's more than we'll ever need. So power wasn't an issue, but you know, there's no conduit or anything. The thing doesn't have AC in the shop. There's, 
there's no spaces. You got to build out the spaces. So I designed the area where our, our media blaster room goes. And so inside there, we got media blast paint booth for our Cerakote and powder coat, plus the oven to bake all that stuff. Next to that, we've got a, a shock station where we mount stuff to and slam it down and you know do a bunch of testing with that. We have a dark room where we do you know calibrate sensors. And then we built an area for the mechanical engineers. So we built that area out. And that was like the first area that got built out. And what's being built right now is my material room, the room for the Kitamora, my office, and our inspection room. So should be done in a couple more weeks. But it went from that Wednesday. I think it was that Wednesday. We were talking about it. The following Thursday, we signed the paperwork, got the keys on Friday, and the flooring guys were there Saturday laying down the epoxy. You were not and kidding. You guys move quick. It's and it's insane. And it, you know, there's obviously there's pros and cons to doing that. You know, it's like rip the bandaid off, get it done, get back to work. At the same time, it's when all the oh shit, we forgot to think about this. Oh shit, we forgot to think about that. You know, and then it's like pivot and figure that out real quick, you know. Meanwhile, all while this is going on, we still have parts to make. We've still got a shop to run. I've still got machinists that need to hop on machines and make parts, you know. So it's just this nonstop chaos. Um, but it was great. And and literally it was like, I think it was we packed everything up. We were in the building, I think it was three weeks later. You know, it took them two weeks to do all the epoxy and let it cure and everything. And then first thing that got brought in were the machines. So that was the picture, my, my most recent picture. Because I, I don't really post a ton. I post more on stories. But my most recent picture is the old shop once we had removed everything and the new shop when the Haas machines were in place. And I haven't posted more since then because right now, I, I kind of, the angles I film are very specific because... We have crap sure. everywhere. It's such yeah. a mess right now. And and it's fine. We're working around it. It's it's just it's a byproduct of of doing this as quick as we did and moving an entire company all while still having to meet deadlines. And, you know, engineers were working from home remotely while their offices were being moved. And, you know, so it was it was hectic. But we're here now. And, you know, so now we're at this point where it's like I've got more work than I know what to do with. You know, which is a good problem to have. I mean, job security, right? If this isn't going anywhere, we're building some of the coolest stuff. You know, it's it is really is cool seeing the stuff that we're coming up with, and and then you know, like I said, I so we make a lot of weapon related products, and I'm not much of a gun guy, and it's not that I'm have a problem with guns. I have a toxic obsession with hobbies. If, <laughs> if you follow me on Instagram, you know how how many mountain bikes I've had in the last year, and the cars I've built are. I just, I have no self-control. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's kind of funny. So I, I choose not to get into it. And also it's, you know, it's that saying of once your hobby becomes your job, it's not fun anymore. You know, it, right. then it, then it becomes, you know, it's just not, a, it's just your job at that point. So and I kind of like an expensive rabbit hole. Yeah. To and down. I, like, yeah. I genuinely like to keep it separate. You know, I, I, I just kind of stick to my hobbies that I do like that doesn't involve work stuff. And then, so the cool thing for me is you give me a model and a blueprint and I'm going to make sure that part's good. You know, it's, it's going to look, it's going to look really good. And that's, that's one thing I, I try to, you know, work with the guys in the shop now is taking pride in their work and delivering, delivering parts that are, you know, like, Hey, let's like, sometimes I'll walk around, I'll see some chatter on a part or something like that. Hey, let's clean that up. You know, it's, is it necessary? Maybe not. It's probably intolerance, but it's about, you know, making some good parts, taking pride in your work and, you know, not delivering crap. You want to like, I always tell guys like you're putting your name on that, you know, you, right. you make that part and you deliver it, you know, and, and I learned that the hard way because I used to do early on, I delivered some pretty shitty parts, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes my boss would point out like, oh yeah, you're right. I, sh I probably should have taken some more pride <laughs> in that, you know? And so now, you know, it's, it's funny early on, I, I used to work with my dad on an asphalt company. I was 18. I was this punk kid. I didn't, 
I didn't want to, I didn't want to work. I wanted to go hang out with my friends on the weekends and, you know, and, and I, so I used to go out in the field and shovel asphalt and I was the laziest dude on the crew, you know, and the guys were like, can you stop sending them with us? And, you know, so I just, it was that thing. And until I found this industry and this profession, it was like, it's kind of what gave me that purpose in life. It, stupid as that sounds, it's like, I finally found something I could focus all my energy and attention on. And kind of like, you know, my ADD, it's like I could focus on things. I could hyper fixate on numbers and, <laughs> and you know, trying to make better parts and, and make our products, you know, shine. I, it's funny. We always have this conversation. I'm sure you do it too. I, I think most machinists do. You look at something that's aluminum, you're holding up somebody's product and you're like, oh, I see how they machine that. All right. Like, oh man, that looks like shit. Why did they do that? They Why would they put their name on that? You know? And so, oh, yeah, totally. so I, I have that in my head, when I go to design meetings and we're talking about how we can make things more manufacturable, it's like, well, I want, I want people to look at you, how the hell did they machine that, you know, or so it, it's kind of cool to, to sort of take little tricks like that and, and incorporate it in some of the designs. And, and then the engineers like to push the limits and the boundaries of what our machines are capable of. And we of found course. them plenty of times, you know, <laughs> so um, I'm sure. Well, let's yeah. answer a couple of questions yeah, sure. from the audience. You answered actually a lot of the questions already, but Firmworks and Thomas like likes lights. Both were asking about bicycle stuff. Firmworks wanted to know when you're going to add a a thousand watt rear hub <laughs> e bike motor to yeah, that custom bike you built your wife. I saw that. You know that the, the funny thing about that bike too is because I'm sure he's interested in it was my wife. So again, I have a toxic obsession with these things. When I when I when I do a project, I don't half-ass it. It's like, I mean, if you followed me on Instagram, I, I took this, dirt, I bought this dirt bike and it was like super, it wasn't even old. It was like a 2020. It was all crusty, like been sitting by the ocean. And I tore the entire thing apart down to the bare frame and, and redid the entire, I mean, every single bearing, every nut. I took every single bolt to my media blaster, blasted into raw aluminum, and then Cerakoted them all. Just oh because goodness. I'm an idiot. And so I, you know, <laughs> built some custom wheels for it, put some plastics on it, did all this. And then I finished it. And my buddy's like, all right, let's go take it to the track. And I, you know, I went out to Paris Raceway and it was fun. And I'm like, I'm going to kill myself and I can't afford to kill myself. So I sold the bike and I, I sold it to a good buddy of mine. But that's the, that's what I do with my projects. And so one night I was driving down the street. My wife saw this family in our neighborhood riding these Super 73s. And she said, I want one of those. And I'm like, Oh, you fucked up. Should have told me that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so literally that was a, that was a Sunday night and Monday morning I found it. I went and bought it. And then I, and I said, do you want to ride it for a little bit before I tear it apart? And she's like, no, nah, go ahead. And then I, you know, I tore it apart. I didn't, you know, it's just nothing crazy on it. I powder coated the frame for it, custom made the seat and did some things on it. And then I'm like, okay, cool. So then I, I built two for my boys off some razor ramblers. I tore those things down made those all custom, did some custom graphics on it and then gave them to their, for their birthdays. And now I have mine and it's still stock for now. But I just, I'll get to that eventually, you know, with, with building that thing up. But yeah, so it's, that's how I've always been with my projects. All my cars, they've always been, you know, I buy a car and like when I had my Mustang, that's, that's the car that I built. And I, I took it to SEMA a couple of years and I had a lot of partners on that. And, and so it was, it was a fun project to build. When I was buying the car, the dealer was like, oh, you know, because I bought it used. Like, I don't care. It's, it was one year old. It had 2,000 miles on it. I just wanted to find a cheap one because I didn't. And he's like, well, it's the base model. And there was like holes in the door. Somebody had cut some holes for some speakers. And the guy's like, hey, sorry about the holes. I'm like, trust me, I'll bring this car by in six months and you're not even going to recognize it. Like, I don't care about any of that, you know. And so it, then it turns into snowballs. And next thing you know, I'm cutting up the fenders and putting a wide body kit on it because I thought wide bodies were the coolest. And now, you know. That fad is, unfortunately, it's just getting worse, but there was a time and a place for it. And 
you know, and then uh, Whipple, I was partnered with Whipple on a couple of builds. And so I had them powder coat the supercharger neon yellow. And then I was like, man, this thing looks so cool. I just took the hood off of the car, <laughs> off the car and, you know, I machined some custom valve cover or the, uh, the valve cover plates for it and did a bunch of stuff that, and that, that was actually the first car that I built my own set of wheels for it. So, so I did it through my buddy's company and we built a set of wheels for that. And I had a, I had the wide body kit made. So we were at the shop and I was cutting up the fenders and it didn't fit because the wheels were too wide. And I'm like, oh, you got to take the wheels apart. And I'm like, no, we're going to refiberglass that up. The wheels are, that's like, I will build a car around a set of wheels. So I'm not going to, it's just fiberglass. Just throw more on there. And so we'll we, make we, it fit. Yeah, yeah. We, we got it, you know? <laughs> and then I had that car and I, I put a roll cage in it for who knows what reason, you know, put some seats in it and. Then I eventually was like, oh, I'm going to, I had KW had sponsored the car. So I had some really nice suspension on it. And then for whatever reason, I said, I'm going to put bags on it. And so I put an airlift, the stupidest thing I've ever did. But, you know, <laughs> so I did all that. And then my wife got pregnant. She, so I had my first son and then my wife got pregnant with our, our second son. And I was like, all right, it's time to sell the car. It's, it's got to go away. So I ended up selling that car. And then, um, then I bought my F-150, which I just sold fairly recently, but that's, built the wheels for that truck. And that was actually a wheel that I designed and machined it with a really big company. And it's a, a true beadlock. I still have the wheels. I sold the truck and I'm like, nope, I'm keeping the wheels. So That's unfortunately, awesome. I never owned another F-150. So they might just hang out in my garage as, as wall art. I tried selling them one time, which was stupid. I should just keep them. But also the amount of money, like, you know, the forgings there, because they're, they're based off of a KMC trophy truck forging. The forgings were expensive. The machine time was expensive. My time to design it and do all that was expensive. And so I'm like, if I was going to try to recover my money out of this thing, it's like, they're going to sell them for way too much money. So I'm just going to keep right. them, you know, and just, just admire them. And so it's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, Thomas likes lights asked what lessons of engineering design and making have you learned specifically from bicycles? So I guess as far as engineering goes, actually, that was one thing I was kind of messing around with for a bit. I designed my own stem. Actually, I designed a couple of them. I've designed some crank sets and pedals. Some some stuff I've just designed. I haven't had time to machine them yet. But I found pretty quickly you can't put holes too close to the edge because I, I built a stem and cracked it because I had the... A, I made it out of 6061, which was the first mistake. And then I, I put some of the holes a little too close to the edge. But, you know, it's it's really... It's, as far as bike stuff goes, it's... it's Especially now, what I've noticed is the industry is kind of interesting with that. It's... I feel like uh, with software like Fusion 360, I feel like it's it feels so tangible for people, you know? Like back in the day, I used to look at this industry and be like, "How? where do you even get started in that? And, you know, maybe that's just me doing this for so long. And, you know, once you do something day in and day out, it just becomes second nature to you. But I feel like, you know, software that's kind of easy to hop on. I mean, the amount of resources that are available now are insane. And so I think it's so awesome for this younger generation of machinists that are up and coming and doing this and, uh, you know, like learning from older people and that kind of thing. But this industry now is so many people have access to CNC machines and software. It's like next, thing you know, all of these companies are popping up. Oh, hey, this company makes stems. Oh, that company makes crank arms. I mean, perfect example of it is fifth axis, right? Like I love those guys. We have fifth axis on everything. Like I love their stuff. But they have a sister company called Five Dev that makes crank arms. They make titanium stems. They make chain rings. And it was so cool because I, as I understand it, some of the guys that worked for Fifth Axis are mountain bike enthusiasts. And they said, hey, let's make this stuff. And so they took 
a SRAM, I think it, I think there was a SRAM GX crankset. There's like some webbing on the casting on the back side of it. And they kind of punched the holes through and said, hey, this crankset looks cool. And they just did it, I think, as like, look what we can do, you know? And then everyone's like, hey, those are cool. And the next thing you know, like now that company's exploded. They're making all kinds of stuff. You know, they're working with Nico Malali. They're, they're doing a cool, he's designing his own frames. And Fifth Axe has kind of stepped up with those guys and helped them, you know, the linkage for his rear suspension. They're machining all that there. And it's, it's so cool seeing that. And as a, as a mountain bike guy and a machinist, it's even cooler seeing that. But so there's a lot of that stuff going on now, you know? And so for me, it's like, I like doing, I'll, I'll make one, throw it on my bike. I'll ride it around and people go, oh, that's cool. I made some cool top caps, you know, just some easy stuff. And then I don't really have any intentions on selling them. You know, I can't, I don't have the time to, to do this in volume. Like I'd, I'd like to, so it's just, it's just, honestly, it's more just kind of playing around. It's, it's really just me trying to push my limits of CAD modeling, you know? So like I have got one, I have probably 17 different STEM designs and I machined one of them. And then the other ones I'm like, that's cool. But what if I change the shape of this? Or what if I change the shape of that? And then it's like, cool. Now, now I got this cool complex shape. How do I machine that now? So it's like, let's start some, some different three axis strategies or some five axis strategies, try different tool paths to make things look good, you know? And so for me, it's just more another excuse to kind of play around and kind of hone my skills. And for me, it's like to this day, I still, all I do is ask questions. I, I want to talk to people. I want to, I want to, a big part, I love networking, you know? So I, tons of people in this industry over the years and lots of friendships, especially over the years. And it's been really cool because I feel like people know what I'm capable of. So if they have a question and they know I've got the answer, they'll ask me and I'm more than happy to help. I will always, to a fault, I will always stop what I'm doing to help people, you know, like literally my, my boss early on when the, when the aerospace company took over, I'm like, I'm taking this, this lean initiative thing and I'm running with it, you know? And I said, yes to everything. And there was one day he's like, you got to stop saying yes to everything because you're creating way too much work for yourself. You're getting burnt out, you know, just, just take it easy. And also, you know, over the years you start learning your self-worth. And so early on when I'm doing, you know, I I've done machining consulting, I've done CAD modeling consulting tons and tons. I mean, I don't even know how many hundreds of wheels I've designed. Some of them are for really big companies. Some of them are like mass produced wheels that are out in the public's eye that I'm like, I sold that design for $350, like, like an idiot, you know, and they're making oh, millions off of this thing. But it's, it's fine. It's, it's early on. That's what I did. I, I wanted to get my name out there. I wanted people to know, oh, that's the guy you call when you need that, you know? So right. I'm like, so I came with this price of like, I'm just going to price it accordingly. I also felt like, how do I price things? You know, like that's a, that's a tough conversation to have because. Oh, it's, it's one of the toughest parts yeah, of this the, business, I think. You know, cause you got, you got to, there's a lot of factors in that. And so early on, I, undersold myself. You know, I was like charging too little for the quality of work that I was providing and the speed I was doing it at. And so at some point you kind of realize, you know what, this is like, you get older, you know, like I got a family now and there's a lot of stuff I'm like, no, I, I know my worth now. And so it's, it's understanding that and charging people accordingly. And, you know, I'm still fair on my pricing. If, if, if somebody doesn't like it, it's probably a client you don't want to work with anyways, but I think that's really important. And, and putting your foot down, when they try to take advantage of you, because that's also happened. And I, it happened one time and never again. In fact, I, I did a project where they, we agreed to a price. I showed up with the parts and they tried to undercut me and they said, Hey, how about we pay you this? And then we'll, for the rest of it, we'll give you some of our product. And like an idiot, I was like, whatever, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. Like this thing is done. I want to move on from it. I got other stuff to do, you know? 
And then they called me about a year ago to do a project with them again. And I said, absolutely not. And they said, oh no, this one, you got plenty of time and like kind of unlimited budget. And I told them, I don't care if you paid me a million dollars, I will never work for you guys ever again. Knowing damn well, if they offered me a million dollars, I would have taken it. But <laughs> <laughs> the point, it was about, you know, about principle and, and kind of, like I said, understanding your self-worth and not letting people take advantage of you. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's kind of what I've, I've learned, you know, my older age, I'm only 38, but you know, the longer you do it, you know, it's yeah, like you learn more and more for sure. Yeah. And yeah. like people, people asking you too, like, man, you know, sometimes like I was talking to my other programmer the other day and we were talking about how they come in the shop and they go, Hey, we need these parts and we need them immediately, you know? And then it's, it's kind of funny because we laugh about like, look, there's two sides to this, right? One of them is that we're really good at what we do. So we kind of make it look easy. And so because of that, I think they take it for granted to a point, but it's also the other side of that is they trust us and they rely on us and they know they can count on us to get it done in that time frame. And so I think there's something, there's a lot of pride to be taken in that, you know? So I think, I think that's, that's a lot to this too, especially working in for this company and what we do and the speed at which we do it. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, we got, we're, we're really close to getting this thing released to the public and it's, it's been a little while coming now, but like I said, it's just the, the back and forth and making sure this is right. And, you know, it's just, I don't know, you know, there's just, a, there's a lot going on right now and, but it's good. It's, it's every day is you come in you're like, all right, what are, what kind of, what kind of stuff we're going to get into today? You know? Cause it's like, I mean, this last week it's every day it's okay. Hey, remember that thing that was like the hottest thing yesterday? Well, now there's something that's more important and you're like machine set up on it already. Like, yeah, that's break fine. Just, just break it down, you know, because yep. favorite thing is the question we get is, I mean, don't you guys have tool setters, right? So, so all you do is just, you just touch off the tool setter and it does it for you, right? I'm like, I wish it was that easy, you know? And sure, if you're, if you guys would listen to me and put everything plus or minus 10 thou, that's exactly what would happen. You right, know? exactly. Yeah, but I could have standard tools <laughs> and it would all be done tomorrow. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah, and, and that's, that's one thing we do actually do at the, in these machines is that that's one of the things I did early on was I created a standardized tool library in all these machines. So inside of Fusion, I've got, I've got a library for all my five axis machines because all of them share a similar library. And then all my, just my regular three axis verticals have that. Kittimore is its own animal. It's got its own tooling and its own thing. But so I've got like on the UMCs, I've got tool one through think 18 preloaded and I've got thread mills in there. I don't tap anything anymore. I'm so done with tapping everything that we tap. All of our parts are M 1.6s, M 2s, O 80s stuff that the machine, the Haas is like, yeah, sure. We'll tap like two of those and then no more, you know, it's right. just, and, and it's, that's, that's a hard tap size. So then I, then Harvey tool comes out with their little tiny thread mills and I discovered those and started thread milling it. And it was a game changer because now it's, you get that reliability and, and all this and, you can cut or comp it and get go, no go gauges. It's like, it's, it's so much better now. And if it breaks, it doesn't scrap apart. You can just load it, up another yeah, one. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't care what anybody says Harvey makes the best thread mills. They make the best key cutters on the market or key seat cutters. I love their tools. Their tools are so awesome. So like, I have an entire drawer that is completely filled of all organized of, uh, all their key seat cutters, different diameters, different thicknesses, different neck diameters, just so we have them on hand. Because again, I don't know what the engineers are going to design. So I've got to have a pretty good mix of tools. And, and we've got metric tooling. I've got inch tooling that I've Trojan horsed into the shop. So I'm like, oh yeah, this is my 9.525 end mill. It's definitely not a 3.8, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, it's kind of funny, you know? And, and honestly, like 
there's just some stuff that's better in inch tooling, you know, like we use a lot of helical end mills because they're, they're one inch end mills cut like glass. It's, it's insane. I actually posted a picture we were making, it's actually that, that ring box that you had posted as the picture on your story. That project was kind of a fun project, but we were, when we were machining the main body for that, we were using a helical one inch end mill. And so we, we had roughed it all out. It was actually for this guy, Charlie, that I've been talking about. He was getting married and he's, he came to me and said, Hey, I want to make this really cool ring box when I proposed to my fiance or his now wife. And so he had this, he had this like STL design similar to what it is. And, and I was like, cool. He's like, but he was pretty early on here at Mastic and he didn't have a lot of CAD modeling experience. So he was like, can you kind of help me out with this? And I'm like, where do I even start with this thing? Like if I showed you the model of that thing, it's got these angled slots that a bearing rides up and down on. And it's got this whole traveler that goes up and down. So when you flip the lever, the ring comes up out of the middle and it's like figuring out the geometry for that and figuring out how we're going to cut this. And, and so, so I, I don't know, two or three weeks working on this CAD model. And I even did it. I did it all. So everything's jointed in fusion. So it's all animated and it all works. So that was for oh, me, that's I, awesome. again, this another, another project for me, a, it's, helping out a guy that I've known since I was 15 years old, but also it's like taking my skills and to another level, it's like another challenge for me. And so, so we machined that thing, but when we were making the body, we were roughed it out. And then the diameter was a little bit big there, the sleeve that goes in it, it's a really tight fit. And so I wrote him a separate toolpath just to come in and contour that. So he did finish it off. And then he loaded another block in and pressed start on oh, the controller. No. So the end mill went into this thing's four inches tall and it went four inches tall, just buried the, the, the end mill in there. And what's crazy is the end mill didn't break. It finally ripped the piece of material. And we had it in one of those fifth axis that they're serrated jaws. Mm-hmm. The fa- and it's only holding on to like three millimeters of material, but it just bit into it. The fact that it held on as long as it did blows my mind. <laughs> and not only that, the, the end mill didn't break. So crazy. I, I have this picture of a piece of material where it's four inches deep, full, you know, full axial engagement into this thing. And the chips on it were massive. And then it ripped the block out. And so we, we loaded another block in there, loaded the right program in it, pressed start, and the thing still cut, had a mirror finish on after the fact. Blew That's my amazing. Mind. So I'm like, man, that fifth axis work holding too, by the way, like the amount of, sh- the amount of strength that held on before it failed was, <laughs> was insane. <laughs> so ever since then, because there were some times where I was done... I wouldn't call them sketchy, but everybody else would call it sketchy. We are like, I'm barely hanging on. That's a big piece of material. And like when I made that control arm, that was a mm-hmm. huge chunk of material. And I was hanging on to it, to it with that. That was when I'm like, is this going to hang or is it going to rip out? And so now I know where the limit of that, of that grip right, is. Yeah. And it's a not, ton. Not a, not a full axial four inch depth cut. I'm yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. So. Well, that brings me to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. First one is what did you research this week? Doesn't have to be machining related. It's just what's been popping up in your browser. So actually, p- perfect answer to that is recently Ray's engineering the, the McVolk, like the TE thirty seven. Everybody knows yeah, that yeah. wheel. They just released a video the other day of them manufacturing their wheel, and I've been trying to find this video forever because there's there's some secret sauce to how they do things over there, and they finally oh, it's just super cool. Yeah, now yeah. they just let everybody know, and so I wouldn't call it researching it, but I was I was glued to that. The best part is is when they 
they had that knurling tool that comes in to do the the beat there were the and it's the all pixelated yeah, they like, won't oh. show you and so we're like oh look at that top secret knurling tool <laughs> you know it was, yeah it was, i know I, I was thinking that too the, the whole time i was watching i was like so you're gonna show us all of these dies and like talk about how proprietary those are like the knurling tool to put a straight yeah, knurl into yeah, your rim I, is, is somehow <laughs> the real secret sauce like i, I know it's so okay. crazy but yeah so, so i was looking at that because you know for me it's like wheels uh, wheels are still my passion i still really do enjoy doing it i i haven't done it in a while just because this job is like i don't have really any free time and when i do i'm either riding my bike or hanging out with my family you know and so so it, it was it's kind of interesting so i'm like every wheel i've ever designed like i wanted to make that i wanted to make an iconic wheel you know like that te 37 such an iconic wheel and i'm like i want to make something like that one day so it's it's been cool you know some of the wheels that we've made they've gone on ferraris and bentleys and and all these crazy cars. And, you know, after a while, like I said, you do it enough times, you're like, okay, cool. But being a car guy, and then also like knowing I modeled that and I wrote that program and, you know, like the other machine shop made it. And it's really not, you know, when you get into it, it's it's like everything. It's just a piece of aluminum. You stick a tool in it, make some cuts, you know, out comes a wheel. But, you know, it's it's a lot of, it spent, took me years to find fine tune those skills and get better at CAD modeling and doing all that stuff. So, you know, that's something I think I'll always want to research and kind of keep it because it's like you never know when it's going to come back up and, you know, you get, yeah. need some more designs made. So totally. Yeah, no, it was it was a super cool video. The other thing that blew me away about it was they showed that deburring tool for the backside of the yeah. rim. Yeah. And, and it how was they un- clocked the spindle around the inside radius yeah. there. Yeah, I was yeah, like, it's what? not a spinning <laughs> deburr tool. Yeah. It, like it's like scribing a radius into the backside of the rim, which yeah, is super blew cool. my mind. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, other than that, you know, like I said, we're we're getting ready to spin back up our anodizing station. So just kind of, you know, refreshing my my memory on that. And hopefully we'll start making some parts black pretty soon. So awesome. Well, the other question I ask is what are the things you're working on to be a better person, leader, employee, what have you? None of us are perfect. We're all working on stuff. What's yours? Yeah. So actually right now, you know, it's it's kind of a big one for me, actually. You know, like I said, my my old boss was a he was more than a boss. He was really a mentor to me. And and I've always told guys, you know. I think it's really important for some of these modern machinists and the guys nowadays to talk to these guys. I mean, like, sure, a lot of what they did is old school. Some of it's not being used anymore. But everything that we do now is fundamentally based on what they did back in the day, you know. And honestly, all the principles are the same. You know, datums are still datums. They're, those don't change. Inspection. In fact, there's actually some really cool old school inspection methods that you're like, how do you even check that? And then you start researching like holy crap somebody came up with that method you know it's so i think that's really important and so for me my boss was always brutally honest with me and i really appreciated that about him you know and i've always been a i feel like i've been pretty good about being receptive to criticism as well i mean really i know i'm not the best at what i do and i don't pretend to be the best at what i do i know i'm good at what i do but if i i'll never be the best there's always going to be somebody out there that's better than you and i think as long as that that exists i think it's important to learn from that, you know? And so for me personally, as now that I'm kind of in charge and and leading this team of guys, sometimes I'll find myself where I still have that machinist mentality where I'm like, I got to program this part and I'm going to, I'm going to go hop on the machine and make this. It's like, no, 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 (laughs) that's not your job anymore. Like you're, we hired people to do that for you, you know? And so, so unfortunately what that means is sometimes I I don't give the attention to the guys that they need, you know, it's kind of like sit down with them and have the same difficult conversations with them that my boss had with me. You know, all the guys in my shop are awesome. Like I, I've got nothing bad to say about them. I mean, they all work their asses off and we've all got, the good thing is 
we're just dudes that get along. You know, we all, we mountain bike together. We go kart race together. We do, we go to lunch together. We, you know, and it's like a sibling rivalry. Every now and then you got guys that are button heads and you got to like, all right, let's, let's reel it in. Let's, you know, we're here to do a job. But I think that's, that's one thing I'm trying to be more cognizant of is, is kind of taking that step back and really kind of being there for them. You know, like, like one of my guys had his review the other day and, and I, it was like, Hey, you know, if there's anything you want to do here, let's have that conversation. I haven't done it yet here at this company because I've just been so focused on, I got to make these parts. I got to make these parts. But really, I think the culture inside of the shop is arguably more important than the processes you have in place, you know? And it's like, I told people there's a, there's a difference between cockiness and confidence, you know, like you can be confident that you're good at what you do, but if you're cocky about it, you're not going to learn from it because, you know, you have some guy that's like badass programmer and then it's like kind of a, kind of a junk program, you know? And then you start pointing it out to them and go, Hey, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that, or this isn't, this isn't the way to do that. And they go, well, yeah, they don't want to listen to it, you know? So I, I think that's always important is, and I think it's also important kind of on this topic of having that, that inward, that inward look at yourself too, and, and sort of seeing where, where I've got room for growth. And I think that's it. I always take the time to, to sit down with these guys anytime they have questions and I get long winded. And so when they ask me to show them something in fusion, I, I always find myself like, oh shit, I, I definitely, we're off, we're on a tangent now. <laughs> like, like, Hey, how do I? <laughs> I just had this conversation with one of the guys in Montana. He's like, how do I write the program to rework this hole? It was just simple rework, right? But he wanted to learn the in-depth, how do you bring the model in? How do you bring the new model adjointed to the old model so you can compare them? And how do you set your 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 setup, you know, your Z and X planes and all that? So then I start going down like, all right, so here's how you write this program. And then here's how you can do this. And here's how you can do this. Then, you know, you can bore the thing out if you want to, but you can also use a con. And the next thing I know, I'm like, oh, shit, I definitely... I, they understood it because they did it today and it was successful. But the fun thing is I'm like, man, I definitely need to like, he asked me a question and I was like, just, you know, probe the center line of the thing, write a contour pass, be done with it. But instead I'm like, let me show you 73 different ways to do this, you know? <laughs> and it wasn't a like, let me show you how much I know. It's just like, I've always learned over the years of like, okay, I'm trying to, I'm trying to shape this surface. This strategy sucks. It's not doing what I want it to do. Right. Well, if, if you don't have any more tools in your belt, you're screwed, you know? So you've always got to have backup plans. And so I always like try to show people those things. Sometimes I'll like, Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that later. We don't need to go over that right now. Um, but, but yeah, so I think that's, that's a big thing is trying to stay on target, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we've been talking two hours now. I think it comes across that you just clearly have a passion for this. And I'm sure oh, you guys yeah. know that too, that it's not, you're not trying to, you know, take up their time. It's the fact that you are obsessed with this and, and yeah, that's it's, a great thing. It's true. You know, and I, I can't ever expect these guys to do what I did. I mean, I spent all of my, I mean, every waking minute of my free time when I wasn't at work, I was doing it for free just to learn it. And I can't expect anybody to do that. You know, and we live in this, we live in this society now where everyone's like, I don't want to work. They, they want to put in the bare minimum effort. You know, you're going to have those shops where you got the button pushers and they don't want to do anything else. They just want to show up. They want to collect that paycheck and they want to go home. Right. But that's not what I want to do. And I try to lead by example. Like if my passion shows through and, you know, and also what I really like is when, when these guys run into a problem, instead of going over there and go, what did you do wrong? It's like, cool. What's the problem? Cool. Let's, let's put our heads together and come up with a solution, you know? And I think having, having more eyes on something like I have programs now that I'm still write programs every now and then. And one of my programmers is like, Oh, Hey, what if you did that? And I'm like, you know what? That's actually a really good idea. I like that. Cause you know, you get, you get pigeonholed and thinking about, you know, 
machining a part, you can do it so many different ways. And there's not one way that's wrong or one way that's right. There's probably a lot of ways that are right. There's also a lot of ways that are wrong. Um, but I think it's also like, you know, you just get so focused on, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it this way, but really like, oh shit, that's damn it. Why didn't I think of that, man? You know, then you're like, but you also have to understand at that point to not have that feeling of like, man, somebody who's been doing this less than I've been doing it just showed me up. And then you start getting those feelings like, man, am I a fraud? You know, but that's not the case. It's just that it's a fresh set of eyes. It's the same thing we do with engineering and every, every aspect of this company. Sometimes it's good to get other eyes on it because you get different perspective. And I think that that goes a long way with process development and, you know, all these different things that are going to improve the shop. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it goes back to what you said, confident versus cocky, you know, yeah, confident, you, you know, you're good, but you know, you can improve. Yeah. And ex- that's, that's exactly. the other part of that coin. So totally agree. Yeah. Well, Rob, thank you so much for coming <laughs> on the show. I, Problem. You'll have to come back on. I'll, I'll be we, more than happy to. There's so much we didn't touch on that I would yeah, love I to pick your brain about, but yeah, I yeah. loved hearing your story. Thank you so much for sharing it. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me on. I really, I really had a good time with it. My pleasure. And thanks to the new Patreon members. Zach, thank you guys for joining the show. Helps me send people like Rob mics and headsets so that you guys have good audio. Uh, Thank you all for listening, and I will be back next week.